Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Henry Lee Lucas, the only Texas death row inmate to be spared an execution by former President George W. Bush during his six years as governor of Texas. During those same six years, another 152 inmates were executed. Why did Bush commute Lucas's death sentence to life in prison just four days before a man once thought to be America's most prolific serial killer was said to receive a lethal injection? I mean, at one point, Lucas was considered a person of interest in around 600 different murders. In 1984, the Texas Rangers created the Lucas Task Force specifically to solve murders thought to be committed by Henry Lee Lucas. And they officially cleared 213 Previously unsolved murders, 213 murders. Detectives from 40 states talked to Lucas about an estimated 3,000 different homicides. So why did Bush let him live? Because even though Lucas had already been convicted of 11 murders, he'd only been sentenced to death for one of those murders. And his involvement in that one death row conviction was beyond uncertain. Lucas had been condemned to die for the killing of an unidentified woman whose body was found in a ditch in 1979. The discovery of this victim, who became known as Orange Socks, because that was all she was wearing when investigators found her body outside of Georgetown, Texas, was highly publicized. The murder of Orange Socks would end up being featured on America's Most Wanted two separate times. And Henry Lee Lucas confessed to her murder four separate times. So he did it, right? No, not likely. He was convicted of her murder by a jury based entirely on his confessions, but it does not seem to be likely that he ever even saw her, let alone had anything to do with her death. No DNA evidence linked him to the crime. Work records and a cashed paycheck indicated that he was hours and hours away in Jacksonville, Florida at the time she died. No witnesses linked Mr. Lucas to the crime. Only his confessions linked him. And by the time Bush had spared Lucas's life, it was well known that Henry's confessions were beyond questionable. This dude loved to confess to murder unlike anybody else before or since. He became known for a time as the confession killer. Actually, he became known as one of two confession killers, the other killer being his former partner in crime, Otis Toole. Otis would end up being convicted for six murders, but like Henry, he would confess to many, many more. He would claim to help Henry kill 108 people and to killing another nine people all by himself. These two claimed that they were members of a network of satanic killers known as the Hands of Death. They said they would receive calls at payphones from an anonymous satanic leader who told them when and where and who to kill to please Satan and bring discord and pain to earth. Today's tale is a very strange one. We know that Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole were killers. 
The evidence was there for sure for some of their crimes. We know that they traveled together all around the country for years. We know people did disappear and die in the places they visited. And we know a lot of people think they did, in fact, kill far more victims than they were convicted of killing. We also know that they for sure lied about a lot of other killings. Today, I'm going to do my best to separate as much fact from fiction as I can as I look into just exactly how terrible these two dirtbags were on another bloody true crime edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers and Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, the master of the suck verse, king of the suck, holy suck master, prophet of Nimrod. And you are listening to Time Suck. And Time Suck is brought to you today by my new Scared to Death podcast. That's right. I'm sponsoring myself because I believe in myself and because I gave myself an incredible sponsor discount. The first two episodes of my new paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death, where I try to scare the shit out of my wife, Lindsay, with two allegedly true tales, comes out next week. Tuesday, September 17th at midnight Pacific time, available on all the standard podcast players. You can watch the new show on the uh, Bad Magic Productions YouTube channel. Check out our new Bad Magic studio. Different spot, different than this show where it's being uh, filmed. Same little office area, different little studio, fancy, cool little mural backdrop, all kinds of occult objects all, all over the desk. Link to that in the episode description. And I had something happen to me last week that I think will, will help me tell a better tale of paranormal horror. I'm a skeptical person, but I had something very strange and hard to explain happen at the Rainbow Room on the Sunset Strip on August 29th, where Lindsay and I and my longtime agent and buddy Joe Eschenbaugh had dinner before my show at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. Showbiz! A very fun show, by the way, as were the Comedy Store shows in La Jolla, which were packed. Anyway, I went to the bathroom in the Rainbow Room, technically the Rainbow Barn Grill, before an early dinner around 5 p.m. It's a landmark restaurant known mostly for being a hard rock hangout for decades. Alice Cooper used to eat there all the time. Uh, Lemmy from Motorhead was there almost every day for the last two decades of his life when he wasn't on tour. Uh, the guys from Guns N' Roses, Poison, Motley Crue, on and on. Uh, John Belushi apparently ate his last meal there. Former suck subject Marilyn Monroe and Joe DiMaggio had their first date there. And a lot of history. It's a dark and dingy place with uh, rock and metal and celebrity memorabilia all over the walls. I mean, I, I'm sure, uh, you know, a fair amount of people spent their last night there. Possibly people, uh, you know, OD'd there and then died. So it has a, has a crazy history. When we were there, it was dead. The bathroom is upstairs and there's a second bar. It's not, it wasn't open yet. And I seem to be the only person upstairs when I went to the bathroom. In this little bathroom, two urinals, one stall, sink to the right immediately when you walk in, very small space. I started using the second urinal. Halfway through going to the bathroom, I hear the sink running full blast, which I thought was odd, you know, that I suddenly noticed it and didn't notice it when I walked in because I had to walk right by it. I look over the hot water cranked all the way up, a little bit of steam coming out of the drain. And I'm, I immediately think, that, you know, that's weird that they would let their bathroom water get that hot. Looks like it could scald you. I finish the urinal. I go turn off the water. I feel spooked. I turn on the cold water, wash my hands, you know, go to the booth where Lindsay and I were sitting. And I'm still spooked. And then a waitress walks by and I just say to her, I'm like, hey, this is, this is weird, but is there stories of like this place being haunted or anything? And I feel like a jackass even bringing that up. I've never brought up something like that to anyone in public before ever in my life. And she immediately cuts me off like it was a dumb question even asked. She's like, oh, yeah, well, for sure. And then uh, I start to tell her, I'm like, this is so weird. But I was just up in the bathroom and uh, the craziest thing happened. And then she cuts me off and goes, oh, the faucet. So clearly this has happened before. Fucking weird that she would just jump immediately to that. I get goosebumps. 
And she goes, oh, was it on? And I'm like, yes. And then she goes, oh, I got some stories for you. And then uh, she runs off to do something and actually never comes back to tell those stories. Uh, Lindsay did see her as well. So she wasn't some ghost or something. I think she clocked out and left. Maybe she just sees weird shit happen so much. It's just not uh, interesting to talk about for her anymore. So bummer there. But then after dinner, uh, Joe and Lindsay and I, we go upstairs to check out this. I want to show them kind of how small it is, how weird it was. And then when I'm in there, I think, well, why don't I just turn on the hot water again and see if it gets that hot? Because I just thought it was weird how hot it was. I leave it on for about a minute. Doesn't get anywhere close to that hot. Like not even close. So what the fuck? Could there be some logical explanation for that? Yeah, sure. I don't know. I guess so. Uh, you know, but I swear, I also felt like something was in that fucking room with me. It felt so weird. So spirit or not, I, I'm less skeptical. And I think that will make telling spooky stories on Scared to Death a lot more fun. So a good time in that way, I guess. But I hope it never fucking happens again because I didn't, I didn't like it. Uh, so subscribe and tune in. Also, speaking of hard rock and metal, do you like Moretta? Fuck yeah, you do. Be sure to stick around after the episode today, Meet Sack. Special treat for you. The exclusive world premiere of a new song from Moretta. That's Joe Paisley's band. That's Joe Horsecock Johnson Paisley's band. Their new track, In Need of Better, was written, recorded, mixed, and mastered right here in CDA, Idaho Pride. It'll be available to the general public this Friday the 13th. But guess what, motherfuckers? You don't have to wait. Because there's always special treatment for the chosen few spawned from deep inside Nimrod's ballsack. You'll find a link to the unlisted music video inside today's episode description. Go feed your ear holes. Tell your friends. Do us a favor. Even if hard rock metal isn't your genre of choice, click it. Every additional play and comment pushes that video up in YouTube's algorithm. It makes Joe Paisley's heart expand like the fucking Grinch in the Christmas story. So it makes it easier for people to find his band. He's really good. Promise. Uh, so there's that. And also, so yes, yeah, so stick around for that. Some of you may have noticed the last weekend our beloved private Facebook group for Time Suck the Cult of the Curious was disabled put in Facebook jail. We, we're Now we're out. We're back out. Facebook recently changed its community standards. The general public's increasingly delicate sensibilities must be guarded at all costs. No peanut butter, butter jokes. No showbiz. What if someone gets triggered? Uh, social media is suddenly becoming very Orwellian. Uh, we got we to gotta soften all the edges. Got to round all the world's corners, you know, before someone falls down and gets a fucking boo-boo, gets owie. God forbid people just, you know, avoid content they don't like and be fucking grown-ups and opt out of groups that bother them. Groups no one is putting a gun to their goddamn head and forcing them to join. It's so ridiculous. I'm no fan of trolls and mindless hate. I'm a huge fan of freedom, though, and, and I just prefer to let anyone say whatever they want to say and never uh, attempt to censor them. I've never attempted to censor anybody. But Facebook, not my company. And I respect their right to decide how to moderate their own community. And they're deciding to play it, you know, safer than I would prefer. So moving forward, we will have to keep things a little tighter inside the group. However, our Time Suck Discord has, has, you know, not safe for work content, extra channels. You can click to that on the episode description if you if you need darker humor than Facebook will now allow. Uh, just be sure to, uh, you know, go download the Discord app first and set up an account before you click that link on the Time Suck app. Uh, we know that the private Facebook group means a lot to a lot of you. You find solace for whatever troubles you're going through. You've made friends, had your GoFundMe campaigns, you know, uh, uh, funded. You know, you, you found important relationships. So we're going to do everything in our power to keep it going. This, this community means a lot to us. Uh, so don't worry. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to, you know, uh, let them take it away. We'll, we'll rebuild it if we have to. It's up right now. The, the Cult of the Curious Facebook page still has plenty of edgy time suck related content also, by the way. Just maybe less shadows of Paisley's massive horsecock. And maybe less memes about sticking bananas in your asshole, that kind of stuff. Just wanted to update you and know that you know we're gonna we're gonna we're on top of it as best we can. Harmony Vela Camp over here full time now, making sure that uh, you know community is taken care of. We we love you guys and and want to make sure you get what you know you want out of it. 
All right. Quick tour dates. Then on to the confession killers, I promise. Dolly Hall in Chicago this Friday the 13th. It's going to be a fun show. Queen of the Suck, Lindsay, traveling with me for that one. Copper Blues in Phoenix next weekend, September 19th to the 21st. Stand-up shows and live Ant Hill Kids podcast on the 21st. Helium in Indianapolis, week after that. Home of Bob and Tom, September 26th to the 28th. West Palm Beach Improv, week after that, Wednesday, October 9th. Side Splitters in Tampa, October 10th to the 13th. And then my new stand-up special taping at the Crowfoot Ballroom in Pontiac, Michigan, just outside Detroit, October 18th. Late show is sold out. Only a few tickets available for the early show. Uh, Then Minneapolis the next night, October 19th, 10,000 Laughs Comedy Festival. And thank you to everybody who comes out to these shows. I've been working hard at stand-up for 19 years, and and I think I'm I'm all right at it. I think I'm I'm pretty decent. And you guys are making me better. You guys are making me the best comic I've ever been. It's a fucking blast. Thank you. Now, now let's see what kind of laughs we can come up with. Talking about two huge pieces of shit. Time for the Confession Killers. Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole, who were they? We're going to try and find out today, but it's not going to be easy. You know, because, uh, you know, one of the things we know about them both, as I pointed out up top, is that they love to lie. Henry in particular. You read 10 different accounts of Henry Lee Lucas's life, and you're going to get 10 different stories. Why? Because every time Henry was interviewed, he gave slightly different details or sometimes vastly different. The only story he couldn't seem to tell was the same story twice. So damn it. Why do murderers also have to be liars? Why can't this suck be about two very trustworthy homicidal maniacs? Both Henry and Otis love to shock and to disturb. They love to fuck with investigators. They love the attention they got from investigators. You know, when they were able to convince them they knew how to clear up some uh, unsolved mystery, they were rewarded with cigarettes, milkshakes, field trips to crime scenes around the country, little uh, prestige in jail. A lot of taxpayer money went into flying Henry Lucas in particular all around the country. Henry was able to get himself out of jail with his confessions, you know, get to eat out at nice restaurants, sleep in nice hotel rooms instead of eating prison cafeteria slop and sleeping in a tiny cell. I'll do my best to differentiate today between facts and speculation, but their stories weave so frequently back between the two, it will not be easy. I'll try and point out when it'll be just flat out impossible. So let's start their tale, as we almost always do here at the beginning. Just like we know that both Lucas and Tool were killers, we also know they both had horrible childhoods. And just like we don't know how many people they did kill, we also don't know exactly how horrible their childhoods were. But if what we do know, and if just, uh, you know, some of what they claimed is true, then we know that these two killers were made, not born, because the abuse they supposedly suffered by the very people who were supposed to protect them from abuse in life was nightmarish. Today's Time Slug Timeline will begin at the birth of Henry Lee Lucas, run all the way up until he met Otis Toole. Then we'll back up to the birth of Otis, run back up until he met Henry Lee Lucas. And then we'll march forward until both of them were incarcerated for for at least some of the murders they probably committed and then on to their deaths. And then we'll bounce out and talk about their lives a little bit more. Does it sound good? Sound good trying to to set set it up for for success? Okay. All right, good. Everybody's right? All right, fantastic. Uh, Let's march, meat sacks. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. On August 23rd, 1936, Henry Lee Lucas was born in his family's dirt floor having log cabin just outside of Blacksburg, Virginia. Blacksburg is now the the roughly 42,000-person home of Virginia Tech. 
In 2007, it was the scene of the Virginia Tech shootings when 32 people were killed, another 17 wounded by a lone gunman. At the time, that was the deadliest shooting carried out by a single gunman in U.S. history. Sadly, that is no longer the case. In 2011, Blacksburg was named best place in the U.S. to raise your kids by Business Week. And that same year, the readers of Southern Living named it the best college town in the South. Blacksburg High School is currently ranked among the top public high schools in the nation for academics. It's a small city that has seen a lot of ups and downs. Lately, seems to be up. Uh, It's been around for a long time, founded way back in 1798. And while it's a home for higher education and civic pride today, still pretty backwoods, 1936. Town didn't get its first police officer until 1937. Blacksburg was just starting to become modern when Henry Lee Lucas showed up, getting its first streetlights in 1935. At that time, it had around 1,500 people, and many lived in poverty. Many were still pretty hillbilly-ish. And the Lucas family may have been the most backwoods, most hillbilly-ish family in all of Blacksburg. Henry was born to 40-ish-year-old Nellie Viola Lucas and 31-year-old Anderson No Legs Lucas. More on No Legs and that nickname in a minute. I say Nellie was roughly 40 when Henry was born. Uh, That's a guesstimate. Could not track down an obituary for her despite a lot of digging. Not sure one exists, at least not one that, uh, that exists online. By the time she died, Nellie was pretty universally hated by her family. And I don't get the feeling that anyone went out of their way to hold some kind of memorial service. So info on her is scarce. Most of it comes from Lucas himself. Sources list her, you know, uh, anywhere from 40 to early 50s at the time of Henry's birth. Her maiden name was Wah, and unfortunately there were several Wahs born in the late 19th century and early 20th century around Virginia. If I had to guess based on what I could find, I would say she was born in 1891, making her 44, 45 when Henry was born. However, she may have been up to 10 years, you know, younger, maybe a few years older, just trying to be transparent. However old she was, Nellie was the family's breadwinner and she made her money as a prostitute. And she wasn't exactly a high-end prostitute. She was a middle-aged, not terribly attractive, mean as hell, uh, working out of a dirt floor backwoods Virginia cabin during the Great Depression prostitute. Not trying to get all high horses, uh, high horses. There we go, making up some new words. And judgy, but I would have rather smacked my dick uh, with a stick rather than take it anywhere near Nessie Lucas. But apparently she was fairly busy with customers. I can only imagine what kind of creeps these dudes were. I picture guys who would barely need makeup to play a zombie on The Walking Dead. Her customers would pay 10 cents to come to the Lucas family home and have sex with Mama Lucas on the bed she shared with her husband. Awesome. So fun. And she had anywhere from nine to 30 kids, depending on the source. And who knows who any of their real fathers were. Uh, Anderson played the part of dad, uh, but birth control clearly wasn't something practiced in the Lucas household. And her uterus had its fair share of human tadpoles lurking around. Based mostly one on Henry would say later, but also occasionally corroborated by some siblings and other eyewitnesses, Viola, Nellie, uh, she went by both names, fucking monster. Like somewhere between Casey Anthony and Joseph Fritzel on the how much of an evil fuck of a parent are you scale. I'm convinced you will soon hate her. Uh, but first, let's talk about old No Legs. No Legs was the super clever nickname given to Anderson by the townsfolk of Blacksburg because, can you guess? He didn't have any legs. <laughs> Do you get it? Do you get how witty that is? He had no legs. So they called him, no legs. Oh, man. I wonder what other cool, creative nicknames the town characters had. Are you, hey, you run into Big Red? He, you can't miss, he's a big fella with red hair. That is why we call him Big Red. Or what about Very Big Fat Gut? You'll know him when you see him. 
if you meet a man with a very big fat gut, well, you just done met very big fat gut. Not to be confused with big fat gut or fat gut or chub belly or even kind of fat, but more just chubby side gut. I would love it if their nicknames got that specific. Just that. Hey, <laughs> have you done run into one eye is a bit bigger than the other bald head flat ass and some has some has kind of has like a small arms compared to how long his legs are. You you can't miss him. Just look for the guy that has one eye that is a little bit bigger than the other eye. <laughs> well, well, you get it. You get it. Go on now. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got a meeting with Ronnie, Ronnie Bobby and Rick and Randy. Those are only two moonshiners in this here country with regular names. Uh, sometime before Henry was born, No Legs was once the family's breadwinner. He was an alcoholic known as Anderson who worked for the local railroad until he passed out drunk one night, fell on some train tracks, and stayed there until the train did done run over his legs. And he spent the rest of his days being yelled at by Nellie and pushed himself around the cabin in a little homemade wooden wagon with a broom handle. So, you know, I'm sure he was in a really good mood just all the time. Hey, Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. I pushed myself around with the broomstick on dirt cabin floor and homemade wooden crate because the train smushed up my legs while some dude fucks my wife on my bed. So that's fucking sweet life. My God. According to the most comprehensive biography I could find on Henry, and what info I could scrape together from a few other sources. Old Jimmy Crack No Legs lived in constant fear of Viola, uh, Nellie, who would beat him and he uh, let her run the house however she saw fit, which was not good for the kids. Henry's childhood, if he's to be believed, was straight out of a horror movie. Henry's birth was not a welcome one because being pregnant and then having a newborn was bad for the prostitution business. Henry claims he was pinched and hit when he cried too much as a, as a baby and rarely held in his, by his mother in the cabin when he was born into uh, cabin that had no electricity, no running water, just a wood-burning stove where Nellie would cook meals for her pimp and sometimes also for her husband and hardly ever for, you know, however many dirty kids were scampering about. According to family legend, when Henry was young, he got caught trying to steal scraps of warm food off of No Legs Plate and he was beaten and then banished to the chicken coop, which became his bedroom. And from that point forward, he would sleep out with the chickens. <laughs> he was like, it's like he was raised more like a dog than a human. And I wouldn't even treat a dog like that. My dogs, Penny Pooper and Ginger Bell, they think that my bed belongs more to them and Lindsay than it does to me. They'll fucking growl at me in my own bed. Those pampered bitches. Uh, they live lives that Henry didn't even dream about. And when I talk about bitches, I mean just Penny and Ginger. It wasn't all, not all three of the ladies. Uh, all right. Henry supposedly gnawed on the woodwork, woodwork of the chicken coop when his teeth began to come in. thought that was an interesting detail. Not even a dog's chew toy to work with. He apparently ate a fair share of lead. Bunch of lead paint in the chicken coop, uh, and uh, that that may have helped contribute to a, a low IQ. He'd be tested later in life and have a IQ around seventy five. He inhaled toxins from the chicken shit, such as cadmium. Studies have shown uh, that odorous compounds from poultry shit definitely induce DNA damage. No studies have been conducted regarding whether or not being forced to uh, live in a chicken coop is good for you, because you know that's obviously fucking horrible to do to somebody. And so why, why would that ever happen? Why would a study even be done about that? By the time little Henry began to attend school in 1941, when he was five, he smelled so bad from living in a chicken coop that he was seated by an open window. I'm sure he wasn't ruthlessly teased at, uh, you know, or ruthlessly teased by the other kids at all. You know, the, the children of town folk who called their, his father no legs. When the school got a hold of Viola and demanded she, you know, Nessie, her name, sorry, is back and forth all the time. Viola Nessie and demanded she clean her child for school. According to Henry, uh, years later, 
she stripped him naked, drug him to a pond on their property, violently washed him down, held him underwater until, uh, you know, he thought he would drown and then also molested him. And then she told him, quote, they want him to be a pretty smelly little girl. And then that's what we'll give them. Mm hmm. That's a quote I pulled from a from a the book I found that had the most comprehensive look into Henry's childhood I could find. And I, and I bet she did talk like that. Oh, wow. I can only I can only imagine what kind of sexy talk she used for her clients. You don't you don't want your picker sucked or what? If you don't come in the next two minutes, I'm going to punch you in your dirt button. According to legend, Nellie put young Henry in a floral dress that belonged to one of his oldest sisters. And then she paraded him through town, bellowing to whoever wanted to listen. Look how beautiful my daughter is. I thought I had a son, but I guess I was wrong. Nellie marched him all the way through the school gates and into the schoolhouse before stomping off back into the woods where she lived like a fucking troll. And Henry had to sit in the dress throughout the whole school uh, day. And then he ran home sobbing all the way. All because he hated it. And because he hated it so much, uh, Nellie began to, to, to punish Henry this way all the time. According to Henry, she loved to immaculate or emasculate the men who weren't her clients. I'm guessing she hated what she felt she had to do to make money and took it out on old no legs and the other males in the cabin. Also, according to Henry, Nellie liked to have no legs in the room when she had clients over and make him watch. Oh, fun. Oh, Jimmy Crackcorn, and I don't care. Jimmy Crackcorn, and I don't care. Jimmy Crackcorn, and I don't care. That my wife will take away my broomstick and beat me in my own home if I don't sit on the dirt floor and watch her get fucked by other dudes. Fun. And then to punish Henry, she'd make him wear a dress and sit down to his uh, next to his maybe dad and make him watch as well. If all of this is true, Henry is sleeping in a chicken coop, never eating a hot home-cooked meal, being sat by the window at school because he smells like chicken shit, where he is undoubtedly being bullied horrifically. He's also, he was also a tiny kid, uh, which would make sense, you know, when you're malnourished. And he's being forced to wear a dress. And he's being forced to sit next to dad and watch random creepy dudes fuck his mom. And she hates his guts. So his introduction to the world seems to have been a little bit less than ideal. Even more fun by his own account, Henry had zero friends. He said uh, even his siblings steered clear of him because he was mama's least favorite. And if they were nice to him, she made life worse for them as well. And then he met and fell in love with a local mule and not a drug mule, like a mule mule. A donkey was his first friend. Could this story get more cartoonishly backwards and sad? At some point during his first few years of school, the only thing Henry looked forward to, this is so ridiculous. I'm just laughing because it's so fucking ridiculous. <laughs> he, he would look forward to seeing a neighbor's old mule that lived on a friend of his dad's property between his cabin and the school. And he'd stop to pet and feed it each day and it grew to recognize him and, and would look forward to his visits. And he loved this mule and this mule seemed to love him. And one day, because he no longer had any use for the mule, the mule's owner gave it to Henry. And he walked it back to his cabin, you know, one day after school. And when he made it home with the mule, Mama Lucas, not happy. According to Henry, when, when uh, Nellie saw how much this mule meant to her son, she went inside, grabbed a shotgun, came back out, walked up to the mule, shot it in the fucking face as it stood next to young Henry. She killed the poor creature immediately, uh, also drenched her son in his best friend's blood. And that's when Henry knew he would grow up to accomplish great things. He knew right then and there he'd be either a doctor or a college professor or a lawyer. He'd become such a great start in life. How could he not go on to accomplish great things? Uh, no, that's when Henry was beaten unconscious. Henry said that after killing his mule, his mama backhanded him hard across the face and yelled, what did you have to do and go down that for? 
Now I've got to go and pay someone to haul that useless carcass away, you worthless, stupid little rat shit. Then she slapped him again, hard enough to drop him to his knees. Then she proceeded to kick and hit him with closed fists until he was unconscious. For the next several years, Henry or uh, Nellie would beat the living shit out of Henry on a regular basis, even beating him for leaving her room when she was fucking a client in front of her son. And then in 1945, when Henry was nine, Mama Lucas nearly beat him to death. Viola, a.k.a. Nessie, a.k.a. Satan's sidekick, put Henry to work one day on a fence around the property. And by fence, I mean scraps of old, half-rotten wood, clumsily tied together with barbed wire. Uh, I, I climbed over or through countless fences like this when I was a kid growing up in rural Idaho playing out in the mountains. They're all over, way out in the woods. Just put up quickly a long time, you know, just to keep cattle and sheep or whatever livestock creature you want from wandering into or out of your property. You know, put up to keep sweet, lovable mules from wandering up to your home and talking to your son, animals you then, of course, have to blast in the face with a shotgun because your kids should have never loved a mule enough to want to bring it home in the first place. You get it. So Nellie is having her son working on the fence instead of going to school. That's another fun part of that. It makes him skip school for this. While she's fucking other guys in her marital bed, uh, as a perennial contender for mother of the year does, and when she uh, calls him into the house to do some work for her, he doesn't hear her. So she calls again, still nothing. Now she's pissed. She has a John halfway undressed, wanting to get some of that sweet Mama Lucas loving. And now little Henry is fucking with business. So she'd have no leg to go find it, but you know, he's he's not able to off-road it too well. He's not able to broomstick push his little homemade wooden wagon out into the woods very far, as you might expect. So she goes to look in herself and she grabs a two by four piece of lumber along the way to smack him for not running when she called because you know what nine-year-old is gonna pay attention to you if you only beat him with your fists and kick him, you know? Nellie finds Henry, takes a baseball swing uh, at his head, cracks him right in the back of the head with that two by four, knocks him out cold. And she's lucky that's all. She's lucky didn't kill him. He very nearly nearly died because, you know, he was an extremely annoying and weak little child who just couldn't walk off a home run swing to the back of the dome with a fence post. After teaching Henry a good lesson, how dare he physically not hear his mother yell for him to stop doing one chore and running and do another chore for her while she makes some prostitution money. Nellie goes back to her John. And then she doesn't notice that Henry doesn't come inside that night. As she gets more clients, gets drunk, no one else notices. The little Henry doesn't show up uh, at the home for the rest of the night. I guess they forgot to do their nightly chicken coop check, make sure he's okay. It's almost like no one cared about him. The next morning, Nellie walks back to where she had knocked Henry unconscious, finds him still laying exactly in the position and place where she had left him. Over 12 hours have passed. He's still out cold. When yelling and kicking him didn't wake him up, She had two of his older brothers drag him inside the cabin and then they just laid him in a corner where he stayed for two more full days before Nellie's pimp, a man who went by the name of Uncle Bernie. My God, this family is so fucking ridiculous. Uncle Bernie takes Henry to the hospital. Accounts of Henry's backwoods childhood, they feel like fucked up punchlines from a very dark version of like Jeff Foxworthy's You Might Be a Redneck jokes. Like as if all of this is taking place in some bizarro, evil parallel universe, some kind of stranger things, upside down version of reality where a, where a dark comic named uh, like Steph Cox scurvy instead of Jeff Fox really tells you might be a killer jokes instead of you might be a, a redneck jokes. If the best parental figure you had growing up was your mama's pimp and you called him Uncle Bernie, you might be a killer. If people called your dad in no legs and your bedroom was the chicken coop and your mama made you wear a dress to school, you might be a killer. 
If your best friend growing up was a neighbor's mule, and when you brought that mule home, your mama shot him in the face and then literally beat you unconscious, you might be a killer. Uh, Uncle Bernie laid the knocked out, almost dead little Henry in the back of his pickup truck. Because, you know, why risk him bleeding on the seat? And drove him into town where the doctor couldn't believe he was still alive. Uh, he hadn't just been unconscious. He'd been in a full-on fucking coma for three days. Four days later, he came out of that coma. Doctors had all kinds of questions. When, he be, when had he been exposed to lead? When had he been exposed to cadmium? Did he live in an unsupervised chicken coop? Henry, still greatly shook up by the head injury, was too dazed to even attempt to answer the questions. Nellie was able to play dumb enough to convince him that, you know, sometimes accidents just happen. And he was released uh, back home. I'm guessing those Blacksburg's uh, doctors weren't among the nation's finest. Shortly after coming back to the coop, Henry began to suffer occasional seizures. Every muscle in his body would contract, shaking and straining against every other one. Uh, his eyes would roll up into his head. He would froth at the mouth, let out little yips or screams. His body would twist and contort his violent convulsions, racked his small frame and left him aching for days in their aftermath. One mummy to be fine. The next, he would be flopping around on the ground, helpless and lost in the black static of his own brain. The only good thing that came out of this beating was that, you know, Nellie was now afraid to beat him that hard again. Uncle Bernie convinced her she'd kill him if she did that and that she'd go to jail. Also, now that Nellie was leaving Henry somewhat alone, the other kids felt a little more comfortable not incurring her wrath if they played with him. And it became, you know, a, a little more of a normal part of the family. The next year, in 1946, when Henry was 10, he suffered another horrific accident at home, a terrible knife accident. Fucking around with hunting knives was apparently just a daily part of Lucas' cabin family life. The Lucas kids would use them to whittle crude toys for themselves out in the woods. If the best toy you ever got growing up was one that you whittled for yourself out in the woods, you might be a killer. The Lucas kids also use knives to play fun games like, uh, you know, see how fast you can stab a knife in between your fingers game. And, uh, you know, uh, throw them in between each other's legs game. And they'd use knives to skin the squirrels and rabbits they caught. And most importantly, they use knives to settle minor disputes and have semi-playful fights. It was a fucking ridiculous shit show in this cabin. All of the Lucas kids would end up with knife scars, but none would end up with more than Henry. And he'd received the worst knife wound of all in 1945. He lunged ahead at one of his brothers during some kind of play fight, or maybe it was a little bit less playful, just as this brother stabbed out with a pocket knife and the blade caught him directly in his left eye and according to henry his eyeball popped and his eye goo ran down his cheek he fell to the floor and had a seizure and then nelly allegedly took one look at her son with blood and leaves caked to his face and said quote ain't nothing to be done about it now just don't be stupid again and then she took a sip of whiskey out of an old soup can uncle bernie had carved the words world's best mama into uh somehow despite taking a dirty knife to the fucking eyeball and, uh, and then soil and decomposing leaves getting rubbed into the socket. Water from a stream being used to wash it out. No hygiene being practiced by anyone involved. The injury did not become infected. I don't know. Maybe he had a stronger immune system from living in fucking chicken shit, dirt his whole life. And if all this is true, it's amazing that this dude made it to adulthood. I mean, he did for sure lose his left eye as a child. There are school pictures of him and all of a sudden, you know, he doesn't have a, a right eye uh, when he's around 10. And then also in 1946, he gets hurt again. Oh my gosh, this, this one is hard to believe, but here's the, here's the story. Apparently, Henry was sitting in class one day when his teacher threw a ruler across the room at a boy sitting behind him who was cracking jokes and disrupting class. And according to one of the sources I found, the teacher missed badly and the pencil, or the ruler, excuse me, struck Henry, 
struck him right in his fucking eye socket and literally stuck there like some shit out of a B-horror movie. And the teacher just pulled it back out. Some kind of weird tales from the crypt scene. Then Henry's eye socket got infected and his eye socket would weep milky tears off and on for the rest of his life. 1949, Henry turned 13 and puberty struck. And that was really bad news for every small creature in his immediate vicinity. We're going to get even more backwoods. No mammal would be safe from his relentless sexual attacks. Not kidding. Years later, Lucas would confess that his first sexual experience with another living thing was not with a human being, but with a squirrel. Could it be more hillbilly? And if you're thinking, how does one even set about fucking a squirrel? You're not alone. When I first read this, I had no idea. I mean, they're so small, right? They got to have tiny little butts. They have teeny tiny little vaginas. Well, thanks to the power of Google, I have an answer. And it is beyond disgusting. Buckle up, meat sacks. This is terrible. But let's not be afraid to put on our grown-up pants and learn something we never needed to know. Uh, Here is what an anonymous person posted on a Reddit thread that I found when I Googled, how do you fuck a squirrel? Skip ahead exactly one minute right now if you don't want to hear this. I timed that out in advance so you could tap out because you won't be able to unhear this. Here we go. They wrote, this is something that caused my parents to put me through almost two and a half years of therapy. But when I was 12, my cousin, who was 16, brought a BB gun to my house to shoot into the woods. When the gun ran out of bullets, he tossed the gun down and said it was my turn if I could find the bullets. BBs are impossible to find in the woods, by the way. But while searching next to my shed, I found a dead squirrel. I'm not sure if the squirrel died from the BB or natural causes, but I decided to pick it up anyways. I guess as the therapist said, I should have felt sad or scared, but instead I widened the anus of the squirrel using a twig and my finger to the point of mutilation. By the time I was done, the squirrel didn't have an anus, but rather a large, gaping, very bloody hole in his backside. I don't remember if I was horny or not, as I had random erections at that age quite often, but I proceeded to insert my erect penis into the mutilated rear cavity of the dead squirrel. It was during the summer So the dead squirrel had been baking in the sun and I remember the hot entrails feeling amazing on my penis. Okay, so there you go. I guess that's how you do it. You don't use an existing hole because they are too tiny. So you make a new one and that's what Henry did. And that's what he did to other small creatures he was able to hunt like rabbits. (laughs) My God. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the Chuckle Slut stage, Steph Coxcurvy. If the first mammal you made love to was not a human being or alive and you had to make your own hole. He might be a killer. 1951, two good things happened to now 14-year-old psychopath Henry Lee Lucas. He got a car and no legs froze to death. Henry had no love for his father, the man who never did anything to spare him from a moment of abuse from his horrific mother. And in late 1950, Anderson No Legs Lucas dragged himself out into the snow late one night in what seems to be a crude suicide attempt. And it worked. By the time anyone came looking for him, he'd gotten such bad hypothermia from laying out in the snow that he'd die in the hospital days later to start the new year. And a few months later, after getting the money to pay for it by burglarizing local homes with some cousins, Henry bought a car. By this time, his hygiene had improved. He was no longer, uh, you know, uh, sleeping in the coop. Uh, so he got to the house somehow, despite missing his eye. He was handsome enough in his own way to convince some local girls to go on some dates with him, but he wasn't able to convince any of them to sleep with him. And in his later years, he claimed that this is what drove him to commit his first murder. Supposedly, he took a young girl who he never named out to a known makeout spot just outside of Blacksburg. And when she wouldn't let him have sex with her, he snapped and started choking her. And he kept choking her until she was dead. 
And then he took off her clothes and had sex with her still warm corpse. And then he drove her body into a remote part of the woods, dug a shallow grave, threw her remains inside, covered it up with dirt and went about his life. Now, wasn't there an investigation? Wouldn't, wouldn't he be the prime suspect in the disappearance of a girl uh, he had just taken out to a makeout spot? You, you would think so. Maybe he made this story up. Maybe no one knew they were dating. Maybe they weren't dating. And he just kidnapped, killed, and raped some stranger. All we have for this story is what he said about it to go on. And he didn't say much more than what I just told you. A name, Laura Burnley, did end up getting tossed out as the possible name of this victim years later. Laura is only named on true crime sites I found to be accurate some of the time, but not all the time. Like murderpedia.com, justcriminals.info. So who knows? Findagrave.com did uh, list or does list a 17-year-old Laura Burnley as dying in March of 1951, but it doesn't show a tombstone or say where she died. And I feel like it may be referencing those sites I just mentioned, like Murderpedia. So who knows? Early 1954, 17-year-old Henry gets arrested for over a dozen local burglaries. And on June 10th, he's sentenced to four years in prison. He's initially incarcerated because of his age at the Beaumont Training School for Boys a juvenile correction center that changed names frequently over the years, first opening as the Virginia Industrial School for Boys and Beaumont Learning Center in 1890. It was located almost 200 miles from Blacksburg, just outside of Richmond, Virginia. The center closed its doors for good just recently in 2017. And Henry's stay there was short-lived. He was intensely disruptive and rebellious. He seemed entirely incapable of absorbing any of the lessons that the school tried to instill in him. One of the staff members would later describe him as a boy gone feral. He escaped about a month into his sentence, made it all the way back home to Blacksburg. When he arrived, he met one of his nieces, the daughter of an older half-sister who had been left in Nellie's care. She was 12 years old, and the day he met her, Henry raped her out behind the chicken coop and then threatened to slit her throat if she told anyone. Not yet 18, and this dude is already completely fucked. Anyone with half a brain could have already told you upon meeting him that no good would ever come from Henry Lee Lucas. After being victimized, he clearly didn't think, I, I sure don't want to inflict this pain on anyone else. He probably didn't think anything. He just saw the world as a place where you violently took whatever you wanted. And of course, I'm speculating here, but I believe this. Uh, while his niece didn't tell anyone, the very next day, the sheriff did pull up to the Lucas cabin, figuring that's where Henry would return when he escaped. No more boys school this time. Lucas was now sent to the Virginia State Penitentiary in Richmond, a center that also closed in 1991. And Henry loved his stay here. No one was making him go to school. No one was trying to reform him. He had a bed that didn't smell like chicken shit. He was fed hot meals every day. A prison, a prison doctor even had him fitted for a glass eye, one he would wear for the rest of his life. So he looked a little better, put on some weight. And in a way, he started to look ruggedly handsome. Also started to have sex on a regular basis. While Henry would always prefer to have sex with women when that was an option, his true sexual preference seemed to be just whatever was warm and close by. If something or someone was alive or hadn't been dead for too long, Henry Lee Lucas would fuck it, him or her. Henry became somewhat popular in prison compared to growing up on, you know, in Mama's, Mama Lucas's cabin of horrors back in Blacksburg. Prison was heaven. The other inmates taught him how to commit other crimes, kind of up his criminal game from when he got back out, how to fight, how to con, how to talk to women. He even began to write to women through a prison pen pal service. In late 1959, at the age of 23, Henry was released. And instead of heading back to Blacksburg, he decided to put some distance, put some miles between himself and Mama Lucas. And he went to stay with a half-sister named Opal in Tecumseh, Michigan, an hour southeast of Detroit. Opal happened to live near a young woman named Stella, who Henry had been writing letters to from prison. Stella was a hard drinker and not much of a looker, according to one source. But she wasn't abusive, and she would have sex with him. And he didn't even have to carve out a new hole to make that happen. So, you know, she already had a couple. So Henry was in love. He got a job at a warehouse, and the two made plans to get married. 
And that winter, he got down on one knee in the Michigan snow and proposed to Stella after he picked her up for the regular date. And she said yes. And he was the happiest he had ever been in his whole life. And they headed out to get thoroughly drunk to celebrate. And of course, they would not live happily ever after. Later that night, Henry shared all his good news, you know, with uh, Opal, his half-sister while he's you know, still living with her. And she was delighted to hear that her little brother finally seemed to be getting his life on track. The very next morning, Opal started calling other members of the Lucas family to spread the joy. Word got back to mama. Nellie, not pleased. She didn't even know that Henry had been released. Didn't even know he had gotten out of prison. Life had been hard on Nellie since Lucas had gone to prison. She'd shot a client in the leg with the same shotgun she'd used to kill that mule. And while she didn't get in any legal trouble for that, word got around. And it was bad for her prostitution business. A business that had almost completely dried up anyway. Pun not intended, but I like it. Uh, she was in her 60s by this point. She was not a beautiful woman to begin with. Her pimp, Uncle Bernie, had moved on. Her husband, as we learned, had died. The rest of her children had either grown up, left the home, or run away, never to come back. She was broke, alone, utterly miserable. She needed someone to take care of her, and she decided that someone needed to be Henry. So she bought herself a bus ticket and headed to Michigan. On the evening of January 12, 1960, Nellie arrived at Opal's apartment in Tecumseh. Opal told her mother that Henry was out at a bar with Stella, and Nellie went out to find him. Nellie walked in, wasted no time finding Henry, telling him that no woman was ever going to marry him, not after what he'd done to those rabbits and those squirrels, not after he had raped his own niece. Yep, she knew about all that. Held on to it like some kind of fucked up blackmail ace in the hole. Then she started hitting Henry with a closed fist in front of everyone, told him that he needed to come home like he was supposed to have done when he first left prison like he had promised. Stella tried to defend Henry, and Nellie cursed her out and then hit her too. Nellie was up in years, but tough, as mean as ever. And she threw Stella down, started hitting and kicking her. The bouncer had to pull her off. Henry went to console Stella. She scurried away from him, told him to get away from her, said she could not be with someone whose mother was a fucking monster. And just like that, Henry's engagement was over. His mother had ruined his past, and now she had destroyed his chance at a decent future. Please welcome back to the stage, Steph Coxcurvy. If your engagement gets called off because your elderly mama beats both your ass and hers in a dive bar after telling everyone that you raped your own niece and had sex with rabbits and squirrels, you might be a killer. The bouncer threw Nellie out of the bar. She went back to Opal's apartment. Henry stayed until closing time, trying to drink the night away. When he returned to Opal's apartment late that night, he went straight to bed. Then about a half hour later, he claimed that Nellie attacked him. And I don't doubt this claim. He said that he woke to Nellie beating him in the head with a broom handle. Got out of bed as, a lot of broom handles in this episode. He got out of bed as fast as his drunken stupor allowed and she continued to beat him with that broom handle until it snapped. Then she started beating him with her fists, spit at him, cursed him. Then Henry snapped, right? Grabbed the pocket knife he'd always kept on or near him and swung it at his mama's head, jammed it right into her neck. And then Henry left, you know, she, she started to bleed out on the floor. She fell down, he flees, drives his car all the way back to Blacksburg, Virginia, his sister, Opal, doesn't check things out until the following morning. I guess she probably knew it was best to stay away from Mama when she was all worked up. She finds Nellie laying in a pool of her own blood on the floor. The knife had just barely nicked an artery, was still sticking in her neck. She was still alive. Tough fucks, these Lucases. An ambulance would take her to the hospital where she quickly died of a heart attack related to the blood loss and the attack. A warrant is issued for Henry's arrest. He's captured almost immediately, and just like that, less than a year after getting out of prison, He's back in, uh, you know, on his way uh, you know, into prison with an even longer sentence. At least this time, he wouldn't have to worry about what mama would do if he got out again. Henry was tried for the second-degree murder of his mother in March 1960, sentenced to 20 to 40 years in the state prison of Southern Michigan at Jackson. 
He did not initially enjoy his second trip to prison as much as the first. He really thought he had a chance at a normal life with Stella, and then Mama ruined that. And then Mama got him sent back to prison where she was still torturing him. He felt haunted by Nellie. He started hearing her voice in his head, asking him what kind of boy kills her own mother. Pretty soon, his mom's voice was telling him to kill himself, and he tried to do just that. His first suicide attempt was almost a success. He fashioned a noose for himself out of his bedclothes, hung himself in his cell for almost 20 minutes before a patrolling guard noticed. The makeshift rope he'd used just hadn't been tight enough to properly cut off the blood supply to his brain. It just interrupted it badly enough to render him unconscious, possibly add a, a little to the brain damage he'd undoubtedly already suffered when Nellie had hit him with that two-by-four when he was a kid. The injuries from his first attempt were minor enough that the doctor didn't even report it. And too much paperwork, too much effort, you know, to uh, set up a watch for somebody. And then two months later, though, he tries again. Henry got the rope right the second time around. The sheets twisted tight enough to bite right into his neck and knock him out instantly. But a guard found him after dangling for about two minutes. This time, a suicide was reported. Henry was transferred out of the prison and over to the uh, Ionia State Mental Hospital in Ionia, Michigan, located about a half hour's drive east of Grand Rapids, an institution that's been closed since 1977. At this mental hospital, Henry received therapy. He was administered an extensive regimen of sedatives to help uh, you know, keep him calm and compliant. He also received weekly electroconvulsive therapy for what his doctors called schizoid delusions. Mama was still talking to him inside his head. I bet she was. How could that evil meat sack not haunt you? Henry was also given a job he loved, working in the filing room, organizing the files of other patients. Privacy laws were a little more relaxed back then. The state hospital in Ionia was home to some of the worst criminals, not just in Michigan, but also from the surrounding states. Those who had committed crimes so horrific, they were considered to be beyond the actions of anyone sane. A full account of every one of their crimes was contained within the files. They were handed over to Henry, along with a full explanation of all the holes in the criminal justice system that these criminals have been able to slip through, ensuring that their crime sprees could continue long beyond the point that logic would suggest they could be stopped. So sitting alone in the stuffy file room day after day, Henry really studied for the first time in his life, and he got an education on how to avoid detection and how to avoid being captured. He figured out that moving from one state to another could completely throw off an investigation because different departments didn't communicate effectively with one another if they talked even at all. He discovered that, you know, the various means of uh, countering forensic investigation, destroying the body of a murder victim, moving them around to rob the police of corroborating evidence. He also learned that patterns were the enemy of every mass murderer. Don't use the same methods to hunt and kill victims. Don't dispose of them in the same way. That's how killers get caught. He learned that by moving around, by destroying evidence, by switching the mode of murder, he could keep the police from drawing any connection between his crimes, and he studied these files for almost a decade. And then on August 22nd, 1970, after only serving 10 years of a 20 to 40 year sentence, Henry Lee Lucas was released early to overcrowding. He later claimed that the, the night he was released within sight of the mental hospital in Ionia, he stole a car, met two teenage girls who he lured into the car by promising them some alcohol, said he got him drunk, strangled and killed both of them before raping their corpses and dumping their bodies in the woods. Then he set out on a fucked up cross-country Lucas family reunion, bouncing from state to state, crashing with brothers, sisters, cousins, uncles, aunts, bouncing on to the next family member's home when he either just overstayed his welcome or was suspected of molesting one of their kids because he probably was molesting one of their kids. Very thankful for my family right now. Do I have relatives I find extremely annoying? Yeah, you bet. Do I have some assholes? Not, not many, but yeah, I do but no molesty creeps that I know of anyway. I got a second cousin. I used to hug all the girls in the family. A little too hard, a little too long, a little too often. Uh, but that's it. 
No Henry Lee Lucases that I'd be forced to uh, say, stay the fuck away from my family if you don't want me to kill you two. Uh, 1971, Henry trying to kidnap a 15-year-old girl back in Michigan, telling her that her boyfriend had sent him to pick her up. She fled and reported him, and when the police found him, they found a handgun in his car, which violated his parole. This violation earned Henry a fresh four-year stint in a Michigan prison where he took advantage of the prison pen pal system again, started corresponding with a woman named Betty Crawford, who lived in Port Deposit, Maryland. When Henry finished his sentence in 1975, he was on a bus to Maryland. Within a few hours of his release, headed towards the waiting sofa of his cousin Wade, who lived conveniently just a short drive from Port Deposit. He was excited to meet Betty, very excited, because she had three daughters. Luke's got a straight job as an auto mechanic in Port Deposit, also got quickly engaged to Betty. On December 5th, 1975, Henry and Betty get married. The happy couple and Henry's new, uh, or three newly acquired stepdaughters moved into a reclaimed mobile home in Lot C3 of Benjamin's Trailer Park in Port Deposit. And for a while, things seemed to be going good. They weren't. They were not. But to Betty, they seemed okay. Henry wasn't a perfect husband. She knew that. You know, but he didn't drink too much. Didn't philander about too much. Had a steady job. Never beat her. And he was fairly charming. So her standards, super high. Uh, the only thing that started to bother Betty was the way that the girls, you know, her girls had started to avoid him. At first, they loved the attention doled out upon them by their new stepdad. He bought them toys and spoiled them. They welcomed the attention, but then something changed. And then Betty found spots of blood and other stains on one of her daughter's sheets. So no bueno, no bueno, in absoluto. And in 1977, when Betty asked her daughters what was going on between them and Henry, they told her they'd been, uh, that he'd been raping them. Betty told Lucas when, she, when he came home that night that he could leave right then and there and never, ever come back or she could call the police right now. And two years after getting married in late 1977, 41-year-old Henry leaves. And who the fuck knows where he went? Some stories have him traveling with relatives back to Blacksburg. Others have him stealing a car and making it all the way to California. Others have him skipping on over to Shreveport, Louisiana. Hospital records show that he did stay in the small 15,000-person town of Beckley, West Virginia at the beginning of 1978, for at least a few months. He met another single mother, a woman named Rhonda Knuckles, who would go on to write a book about her time spent with Henry Lee Lucas, a book called How I Survived Henry Lucas, Living with a Serial Killer, published in 2004. Henry got a job in a carpet warehouse, lived with Rhonda until child molestation allegations began to surface by members of the Knuckles family and other locals. When Henry heard that a lynch party was forming, he stole the truck, and by the spring of 1978, he'd made it back to, or made it all, uh, made it over to Florida, excuse me. Flat broke with no leads for work. He found himself standing in a Jacksonville, Florida soup kitchen where he met the man who would help him kill God knows how many people, or maybe none, but maybe quite a bit, over the next six years, 31-year-old Otis Toole. Okay, so now we're going to push pause in Henry Lee Lucas' story. Go back in time to look at the early years of Otis Toole. And before we do that, uh, can we talk for a moment about how sad and horrible Henry Lee Lucas's life was? And then before we do that, maybe a word from our sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by the fantabulous mattress and more company, Lisa. You know what's way more comfortable uh, to sleep on than a, than a chicken poop covered floor in, in Virginia? A Lisa mattress. Bad example, but very true. Lisa believes that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. They believe that everybody has a right to rest. Maybe not, maybe not Henry Lee Lucas. Maybe not his body, but like every almost, but most bodies. Lisa makes two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. The all foam Lisa mattress is new and improved. 
featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers. Their Sapira Hybrid Mattress is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody, and from day one, Lisa set out to create a company with heart. That's why they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. To date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofits. I love my Lisa mattress. I've had it for two years now, and I haven't always gotten the hours of sleep I should have gotten the last two years. Too much research, but when I do get sleep, I get great sleep. Thanks to Lisa. My back feels amazing. So feel amazing yourself. Get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use the promo code timesuck. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck, promo code timesuck. Do it. Link in the episode description. Now let's recap the life so far of someone who never slept on a nice mattress a day in his life, Henry Lee Lucas, prison, poverty, and crime. Each phase of Henry's life fell under one of those descriptions, if not under two. He was raised in extreme poverty by an extremely fucked up family, like cartoonishly dysfunctional. His dad passed out drunk on some train tracks, lost his legs, went by the nickname of No Legs for the rest of his life. His mom was an abusive prostitute who made him sleep in a chicken coop, left him laying in the dirt when she knocked him out with a two by four for not hearing her call him. He was forced to wear a dress to school. He had to sit next to the window because he reeked of chicken shit. Forced to sit next to his father on the floor and watch his mother have sex with strangers. His first sexual experiences were with squirrels and rabbits. He lost an eye in a play knife fight with a brother. It didn't sound very playful. He claims that his first sexual experience outside of, you know, uh, possibly being molested by his mother in a pond with a human being was with the dead body of a girl he just strangled. His next sexual experience was raping a niece. And his next multiple experiences would take place in prison. Within months of getting kicked out of, or getting, excuse me, getting out of prison, he stabbed his mother in the neck and killed her. He went back to prison, then to a state mental hospital for a decade, then traveled around the country molesting and raping family members and possibly raping and killing strangers. He tells so many stories years later. God knows what all he did. He goes back to prison again after trying to kidnap a teen girl, gets out, gets married, then flees town after molesting a race and raping his stepdaughters, then gets run out of another town for molesting and raping who knows how many other kids. Then at 41, this man who has known almost nothing but incarceration and aimless drifting and violence and sexual abuse, both dishing out and receiving the violence and sexual abuse, this man meets another man who he'd go on to have a long and infamous crime spree with, a man who'd had a similarly uh, similarly terrible childhood, Otis Toole. Let's back up now to 1947. On March 5th, 1947, Otis L. Wood Toole was born in Jacksonville, Florida. And holy shit, what a name. Otis Elwood Toole. That name alone may have kept him from ever getting good grades or a decent job. Otis Elwood Toole is the kind of name you give to like an inbred redneck character in some kind of slapstick comedy. All three names sound backwoods. Put them all together and it sounds like you've made some kind of hillbilly superhero. Up, up, and away. Otis Elwood Toole is here to save the day. Oh, God damn it. Oh, done got my cape stuck on the back of the toilet. Oh, shit. I got shit on my cape now. Well, if this ain't messier than a turd biscuit on a hot sidewalk, oh, damn it. Someone get my pocket knife in a mint. I'm going to have to cut this cape off before I open that way anywheres. And I got some in my mouth. Oh, God dang it. Anyway, Otis was born in Jacksonville, a city founded in 1822, named after former suck subject Andrew Jackson. Jacksonville is actually the biggest city in Florida, at least as far as the population inside its city limits go, uh, with roughly a million people, which surprisingly is almost twice as big as Miami. 
The Mid's metro area is the fourth biggest in Florida behind Miami, Tampa, and Orlando. Uh, I've been there twice, and for some reason, I thought it was uh, way smaller. It's also the biggest city when it comes to total acreage in the entire United States. So anyway, pretty big city. And in that way, Otis had a very different childhood than small town Henry. And so many other ways, eerily similar childhood. Otis's father was Bill Toole, an alcoholic, just like Henry's dad, who would leave his wife and eight kids when Otis was in grade school and never return. His mother was Sarah Toole, a woman who, according to Otis, didn't want another son when he was born. A mom who didn't want him, also like Henry. And just like Henry, Otis suffered from seizures. Unlike Henry, he suffered them from birth. They weren't brought in by a two-by-four to the head. Also like Henry, Otis's mother made him wear dresses. Otis's dad liked to have his dirtbag friends come over and drink with him. And he liked little Otis to be the cocktail waitress. Little Otis who would be wearing a dress and answering to the name of Susan and serving drinks to his dad's friends when he was like five years old. This this shit is crazy. So fucking creepy. How are there so many dirtbags out there raising kids? And one night, one of these dirtbags put their hand up young Otis's skirt and Otis's dad, Bill, caught him. And unfortunately, he didn't cave this man's fucking skull in. Now, of course not. This is a guy who allegedly was forcing his five-year-old son to wear the dress and serve these guys drinks. No, he saw dollar signs, according to what Otis was claiming years later. And then, uh, you know, Otis's dad decided to pimp out his five-year-old body to these men for a few cents a turn. And that night, a few of these drunken dudes raped Otis, who screamed out in pain and confusion in front of his father, who may have been watching. How, how much is that going to fuck you up? And, oh, shit. And uh, I, I hear somebody coming down the suck dungeon hallway. Oh, oh, okay. All right. All right. Yeah, they're coming in the door now. Bye-bye, playboy. Bye-bye. Goddamn, man. This is sadder than sad. Enough sexual abuse to make a pimp madder than man. First Nelly making her son watch. Now Bill making his son squat. No wonder they both end up feeling with the hate and violate. They both been self-instilling. Making Chicken Joe feeling guilt over pimping and prostitution. Ain't no Uncle Bernie or Bill Toole, but still part of the ass-for-cash institution. Time Chicken Joe be part of the solution. No more pollution, just evolution, restitution, and absolution. Uh, okay. Uh, allow me to translate. I, th- I think Chicken Joe just officially retired from pimping and wants to help keep others from suffering what Otis suffered and witnessing what Henry witnessed. So, uh, cool. Uh, old character, by the way, if you're a confused new listener. Chicken Joe from the Candyman Suck pops in from time to time to drop some pimp perspective. After that horrible night in 1952, Bill would pimp his son out again occasionally, and a few neighborhood men also began to molest Otis. And Otis would also claim some of his older sisters also began to molest him around this time. This couldn't couldn't have had any idea what normal sexual boundaries were. Also, his mother, instead of defending him from all this, verbally abused him, calling him a whore and a slut, as if he brought on all of this sexual attention upon himself, as if this, this shit was his fault. So, you know, uh, he was not you know, living exactly in a safe space. If your mama makes you wear a dress at the age of five and then your daddy makes you serve drinks in that dress to his drinking buddies who pay your daddy money to rape you and then your sisters also molest you and then your mama blames all this on you, you might be a killer. Thanks, uh, Steph Coxgury. And then, and then one day, sometime between 1953 and 1956, Otis is running out across the rotten front porch. And one of the boards gives way beneath his feet and he falls flat on his face. And that on its own would have hurt quite a bit, I'm guessing. But what really stung was the nail he landed on. He allegedly pushed a nail straight into his skull, two inches into his brain. 
And then his dumb fuck trash mother pulled it out and did not take him to a hospital. Yay, good moms and dads. This suck has almost none of them. Uh, This injury and the parental response to it or lack thereof reminds me of Henry Lucas's eye. Both of these men raised by the lowest level of dumb fuck white trash imaginable. After the nail incident, Otis has way more seizures as one would expect when a nail gets put in your head. In the spring of 1957, Otis is drunk and scum of the earth. Father Bill leaves the family without warning and never returns. Hopefully, he went and jumped off a cliff and then cannonball style impaled, impaled his asshole on a sword made out of sandpaper and salt. Otis would later claim that shortly after his father leaving, he went to live with his grandmother and that his grandmother was some kind of priestess, some kind of practicing Satanist. And this is highly unlikely. Otis would talk all kinds of crazy talk about Satanists later, and I don't buy any of it. Maybe he did go live with his grandma, but I doubt she started letting Satanists molest and torture him in bizarre and elaborate rituals. There was never any evidence of the many claims of the existence of child sacrificing Satanic groups both he and Henry Lucas would later talk about that were investigated. They found nothing. Otis would claim uh, something that probably did actually happen, though, in 1959. He turned 12 that year, hit puberty, and realized he was sexually attracted to other boys. And when he told his 1959 Jacksonville dirtbag family he was gay, the news was not well received. Not even Grandma Satan was supportive. His mom proceeded to try and beat the gay out of him, which has literally not ever worked once in the history of ever. And he ran away from home. He started squatting in various abandoned houses in Jacksonville, which were apparently all over the place. He'd set fires in these houses to keep warm at night. And at first, his fire stayed in the actual fireplaces, but he was 12. And, uh, you know, on his own for the first time and angry at the world. And he didn't work real hard to make sure these fires were contained. And sometime in 1959, he accidentally burned down one of these homes. And he loved it. The fire turned him on. And for the next two years, he set, according to his own recollections, a great many fires around Jacksonville because of the sexual excitement, the sexual excitement, excuse me, it gave him. If your mama beat you when you told her you was gay and then you ran away from home and started burning down houses because fire put some steel in your Peter, you might be a killer. 1961, when Otis had turned 14, he began turning tricks to survive on his own and become a fixture in Jacksonville's gay bar scene. There wasn't many gay bars in Jacksonville in 1961, but Otis became a regular at all of them. There was, there was a fair amount of gay prostitutes in Jacksonville, and Otis became part of that community where, you know, at least some people were looking out for him, kind of. At least they accepted him for who he was. Otis also claimed to commit his first murder at the age of 14. As Otis would later recall, one night he was picked up by a traveling salesman. Not all of his clients were kind to him or complimentary, but they usually didn't scare him. This guy did. The second Otis got into the car, he tore off down the freeway, laughing his ass off. In the middle of nowhere, 10 minutes out of town, this guy swerved off the road, slammed on the brakes, smashing Otis into the dashboard, knocking the wind out of him. He then dragged the dazed 14-year-old out of the car, forced him down on all fours in the glare of the headlights, and then violently sodomized Otis. No lube, no effort to spare Otis any pain. Uh, In fact, effort to give him pain. Otis screamed out as the man raped him, and then the man clearly enjoyed his suffering, telling him, go on, yeah, no one's going to hear you out here. When he was done, the salesman threw some change at Otis, staggered back towards his car, laughing at what he'd done. He stopped in front of the car to light a cigarette, looked back at where he'd left Otis, and then he stopped laughing. Otis was gone. He turned, made a mad dash for the driver's door, but Otis had beat him to it. Otis locked the door, slammed the car into reverse, hammered it forward straight into the sadistic salesman who fell into the car. He ran right over him. Otis then reversed, backed up over the man who squirmed in pain, ran over him again. Then he got out to put his pants back on and make sure that the salesman was dead. He was super dead. The car's tires had run right over his head one of those times and his skull had been crushed 
to a pulp. If you back over a salesman you just done run over on the side of the road to make sure he's dead, you might be a, oh, oh heck, I guess in that situation, I mean, you already are a killer. I guess that's all for me then. Hey, take care of your weight staff. Drive home safer than you know that salesman guy Otis Tun just killed. Deader than a cat that done been shot 10 times. Uh, thanks for coming down to the chuckle slut. Uh, I'm Steph Cox Kirby. I'll see you next time. If that salesman really did behave like Otis described, picking up a 14-year-old boy, violently sodomizing him as he screamed out in pain, then I'm glad his night ended with a flat head on the side of the road. Picking up a prostitute doesn't make any sexual thing you do to them okay, right? You, you can rape a partner. You can rape a prostitute just like you can rape a stranger. Non-consent is non-consent. Fuck that guy. For the next three years, Otis Tool continued to live on the streets of Jacksonville as a teenage prostitute and petty theft, stealing goods from the homes, or petty thief, stealing goods from the homes he'd crash you know, in and, and selling them and occasionally burning down those homes. Then in August of 1964, when Otis was 17, he got arrested in a prostitution sting. Because the officers didn't end up with enough evidence to actually charge Otis with prostitution, they charged him with loitering with intent, which is kind of like being charged with being up to no good. Uh, it's a lesser prostitution charge, which means we didn't catch him in the act. But come on. Everybody knows what he's doing out there on the street. Otis got six months in jail. And like Henry Lee Lucas, he fucking loved it. He loved it more than Henry. Hot meals, a bed, plenty of dudes to date. While Henry was a sexual opportunist, Otis was a homosexual and jail was literally the best place he'd ever been up until that point in his life. When Otis got out in 1965, empowered by the knowledge that he really didn't care if he went to prison or not, you know, the just about to turn 18 Otis Tool decided to explore more of the world than Jacksonville. He stole a car within a few weeks of being released, bounced around the South, staying in abandoned homes, burglarizing others, whoring himself out, possibly murdering others. He confessed to such a ridiculous amount of murders and then retract most of his confessions or have them discredited that it's impossible to know what he actually did from 1965 to 1973. In 1974, he was living in Nebraska or at least taking his time drifting through Nebraska, and he became the prime suspect in the murder of 24-year-old Patricia Webb. He's still a suspect in her murder. Uh, Patricia was shot in Lincoln on April 18th, but did Otis Toole kill her? Toole would confess to her murder, along with hundreds of others. But he, you know, he's, again, still a suspect. But Webb was also working as an undercover drug informant for the Nebraska State Patrol. She was working in a porn shop, and the mafia was believed to have been running that porn shop and others, using them as fronts for crimes like narcotics dealing, and in 2012, in an interview, Lincoln Police Sergeant Larry Barksdale, who had reopened Webb's case, uh, thinks she was executed by someone either in the mob or working for the mob. She wasn't raped before or after being shot six times in the head, four more times in the body. It seemed like an execution. Uh, shortly after her murder, Toole would claim he left Nebraska and headed for Colorado, where one month later, he became a suspect in another homicide, the murder of 31-year-old Ellen Holman, murdered on October 14, 1974. Holman was abducted from Pueblo, Colorado, shot three times in the head, her body dumped by the side of the road near the Oklahoma border. Shortly after her disappearance and death, Tool left Colorado. He was staying in Boulder and headed back towards Jacksonville, arriving there by early 1975. For the next few years, Tool, now in his late 20s, reestablished relationships with some family members in the area, worked odd jobs, stole shit from time to time, prostituted here and there. In 1976, he even briefly tried to pretend he was straight and got married. Supposedly married an unnamed woman, 25 years his senior, who then annulled the marriage three days later when she found out he was gay. Uh, feels like a scam slash money grab to me there. And then in the spring of 1978, he met Henry Lee Lucas in a Jacksonville soup kitchen. Now we're caught back up with Henry in the timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Before we go further with the conjoined exploits of these two, let's recap Otis a bit. 
It's even harder to get life details on Otis than it was with Henry. No one in his family, to my knowledge, ever granted any interviews. His mother and grandmother were dead by the time he was caught. His dad abandoned the family, seems to have died, based on genealogy records shortly after doing so. His siblings either didn't get asked for any interviews or didn't grant them. There are a few quickly written shitty biographies on Tool that amount to nothing more than a than fluffed up kind of Wikipedia page. Uh, nothing has been written by any respected true crime author. He didn't seem to really have any friends. He moved around, either stole and hustled his way through life or worked for cash. He stole cars or hitchhiked instead of buying a bus ticket or a vehicle most of the time. So it's hard to find, you know, even sales records to really track down where he was. He was a ghost for much of his free life. Also based on the results of some prison assessments, also had a low IQ around 75. And this comes across in a handful of prison interviews. He doesn't reveal much about his life in these interviews other than that fire makes his dick hard and that he would like to watch an entire city burn to the ground because that would get him really hard. And it's no big, and he also says in one interview, uh, it's no big deal being a killer because, you know, he he talks, this is how he talks. He reminds me of this character from a movie. uh, I'm I'm trying to place, it was a Richard Gere movie. Uh, Oh my God, with the guy from American History X. Oh, I cannot remember. I'm blanking right now. I I I don't have this in my notes. It's just, uh, his voice just right now just connected to my head with a really good actor who played, uh, whatever. Anyway. His voice, when he, he said like, it's no big deal being a killer because even if you step on a bug, you're, you know, you're a killer. He comes across as a simple guy intellectually who enjoyed burning shit and killing people the same way a typical kid would love ice cream and video games. No guilt over murder. Just saying everything with that soft, just don't, don't mind me. I'm just a harmless old Southern belle kind of way to speak. He comes across very likable, actually. Very harmless. Says things in such a pleasant way. You almost forget how horrible the shit he's talking about really is. Just this attitude like, you know, some people like going to the movies and I just, I like setting things on fire and just kind of raping and killing folks. Uh, now let's talk about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis. Primal right? Fear? Thank you, Primal Fear. Sorry, we, we're trying to figure it out out here. Uh, yeah, Primal Fear. And what's the actor's name? It's the guy from American History X. Edward Norton. Edward Norton. Norton. Thank you. He, he, he talks like Edward Norton's character in Primal Fear. For any of you who have the reference, thank you. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley. Fuck yeah, it was more harmony than me. Okay, thank you, Harmony Bell. Thank you, Harmony. <laughs> so now let's talk about Henry Lee Lucas and Otis running amok together after a word from our final sponsor. Time Suck Today is brought to you by the incredible longtime supporter of the Suck, the Great Courses Plus, the Knights Templar, the Illuminati, Japan's Black Dragons. Secret societies like these have been shrouded in mystery and intrigue for thousands of years. We've talked about many of them here on Time Suck because they fascinate me. And based on episode downloads, oh, they fascinate many of you as well. Even Otis Toole and Henry Lucas would end up talking about a supposed secret society, the Hands of Death. The Great Courses Plus also fascinated. They have an amazing new course called The Real History of Secret Societies created in partnership with the History Network. This is a deep dive into the brotherhoods, orders, and cults that have often played covert yet major roles throughout history, or at least have supposedly done that. I loved digging into the real origins of the Illuminati, getting additional details about the real group founded by a young lawyer obsessed with creating the New World Order. A new world order, very much like communism. 26 lectures in this course covering secret societies, uh, many of which I've never even heard of, like the Black Shriners, Red Octopus. Uh, Secret societies, one of hundreds of in-depth lecture series that you can watch or listen to from the Great Courses Plus. They offer unlimited video access to the world's greatest professors who are experts in their fields. You can explore and truly master any topic that fascinates you for a limited time only. You meet sex. Get a full month of unlimited access to The Great Courses Plus for free. I like free. I hope you like free. To get this special offer, you need to sign up to my special URL. It's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. 
That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash timesuck. Don't miss out on this. Sign up for The Great Courses Plus today. Link in the episode description. Now on to the times and crimes of today's dirtbag duo. So after meeting that soup kitchen, Henry Otis, uh, Henry and Otis, excuse me, start bonding almost instantaneously. They have a tremendous amount in common. They both suffered from seizures in childhood. They both had alcoholic fathers who left the family. Henry's father through what seemed to be a suicide. Otis's father, just straight up abandonment. They both had mothers who hated them, forced them to wear dresses. They both had committed murder, or we think they both did. Henry, for sure, he went to prison for killing his mom. Otis did always stick to his claim of killing that sadistic salesman when he was 14. They both grew up super poor. They both had strange head injuries as children. Henry's two by four to the back of the head. Otis is nailed to the brain. Neither family cared enough about them to take them to the hospital after those injuries. They both enjoyed uh, being incarcerated, and they both drifted aimlessly from place to place, surviving off of uh, petty crimes. Neither of them ever really had a friend, unless you count that mule. Uh, not a friend who you know knew who they actually were and still accepted them or even loved them. Now, there are different versions of what the two did the first day they met. Some versions involve 31-year-old Otis bringing 41-year-old Henry home to stay with him and his mama. Other versions have his mother dead, which based on death records is not true, and that the men then bond over being haunted by their mothers when they stop at the tombstone of Otis's mother, Sarah, who wouldn't die until May of 1981. Uh, other versions have the two heading straight to Otis's apartment, you know, just fucking each other's brains out before heading out to kill hundreds of hitchhikers, following the orders of that secret, secret satanic organization known as the Hands of Death. That doesn't seem to be true. This next story may not be true either, but it feels to me like the most likely version to be true. Or maybe just the most exciting version. Maybe just elements of this one are true. In this version, Henry and Otis meet, and then Otis invites Henry over to his place so he can change and they can go out and grab some drinks together. Hit the town. Otis changes into women's clothes, and they go out to a local gay bar. And Henry doesn't care, and Otis loves that Henry doesn't care. Henry likes how comfortable Otis is with his true nature. They have a few drinks. They go to a local bar that is decidedly not gay a bit later. And the Jacksonville locals don't exactly appreciate Otis's choice of clothes. Don't like the dress he's wearing. And he and Henry step outside with some of them after some fighting words get tossed about. And then a fight ensues and Henry and Otis beat the shit out of two men, mostly Otis. Henry's impressed with his toughness. Then more locals come out and severely outnumbered Henry and Otis run for their lives after a few blocks. Only one man still chasing him. He follows him into an alley where then Otis takes a handgun out of his purse and shoots this son of a bitch point-blank range six times in the chest and kills him. And then, because everyone in that bar could ID them, the two flee Jacksonville. And again, no idea if this actually fucking happened or not. But it's my favorite origin story for this, uh, you know, dysfunctional uh, pair. They're the beginning of their misadventures together. The two would later claim they had a grand old time in the summer of 78. Become, uh, they became occasional lovers. Uh, Henry would never be into Otis like Otis would be into him. But when he couldn't find a woman, Otis was a reliable, you know, backup plan. And they enjoyed each other's company, drinking together, robbing convenience stores and gas stations in Alabama, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin. They would claim to shoot any store clerk or customer who got in their way. They claimed that they picked up a variety of hitchhikers, mostly young women, with Henry and even Otis sometimes raping them. I guess his sexual attraction to violence would overcome his homosexuality in moments. And then they dumped the bodies in the woods. They both would claim, based on what Henry learned studying these case files back in Ionia, that they varied up their killing methods to keep authorities from connecting their crimes. They burn some bodies, cut up others. They'd leave some bodies out in the open, bury others. Some victims were raped before or after death. Some were never touched sexually. The ages of the victims would range substantially. Uh, while Henry, you know, preferred teen girls, sometimes they would kill, you know, uh, elderly women, sometimes dudes. Now, the sex of the victims would vary. Sometimes they took money and valuables off of victims. Sometimes they didn't. 
Sometimes victims were shot to death, sometimes stabbed, sometimes strangled. According to Otis, on the night of November 5th, 1978, they traveled to Round Rock, north of Austin, Texas, on Interstate 35, picked up a teenage couple whose 1974 Ford Torino had run out of gas. When they got both teenagers in the car, they pointed a gun at the teenage boy, and he gave them his wallet. Henry was driving the car, pulled off the road. Otis opened the door, pulled the boy out, and shot him. When the boy tried to run, Otis emptied his gun into him. While Otis was driving the car, Henry went to the back seat, started raping the girl. Otis got jealous. He stopped the car on a service road south of Waco, where he ordered the girl out of the car and put six shots into her. He had all kinds of similar little stories that may or may not have happened like that. In early 1979, Henry and Otis stayed with Henry's half-sister, Almeida, in Maryland. But then they left in February after, you know, she threatened to report him for sexually abusing her granddaughter. As he left town, Henry stole his nephew Randy Kaiser's pickup truck. They made it back to Jacksonville, 1979, couch surfed for a bit, staying with some of Otis's sisters, eventually making it to the home of his oldest sister, Drusilla. Drusilla was a single mom and needed babysitting help, so she let her homicidal brother and her serial molesting buddy and his serial molesting buddy, Henry, watch her 10-year-old twins, Frank and Frida, in exchange for a place to stay. And surprisingly, this didn't work out well for her daughter, Frida. Weird. Henry immediately started grooming Frida to be molested. He gave her a secret name. She'd soon adopt publicly, Becky, and he showered gifts upon her. To stay close to, to Becky, Henry even got a day job in Jacksonville. He got Otis one too. Both began working at Southeast Color Coat, a roofing company where the men actually do show up on payroll records. A few years later, after getting caught for other murders, Henry and Otis would confess to committing hundreds of murders in and around 1979. The most famous of these murders was the murder of 23-year-old Deborah Louise Jackson, which Henry took credit for. She died on either October 30th or October 31st, 1979. Deborah was just recently positively identified thanks to DNA advancements. Just last month, all these years later, prior to August of 2019, she was known only as Orange Socks. Name given because, you know, when her body was found, as I said earlier, she just had a pair of orange socks on. And again, this is that victim I said at the beginning of today's suck that Henry Lee Lucas would be sentenced to death for. And it's the execution sentence former Texas Governor George W. Bush would repeal. Jackson had been sexually assaulted, strangled to death, thrown over the guardrail along Interstate 35 near Georgetown, Texas, north of Austin. One of two matchbooks found at the scene belonged to a hotel from Henrietta, Oklahoma, supporting a theory that she was a hitchhiker or a drifter. Years later, Lucas would claim that he killed this woman, although no physical evidence linked him to the killing. He stated that he picked her up in Oklahoma where they'd had sex. And then they drove on down to Texas and he wanted sex again and she refused and he became enraged and strangled her, raped her corpse, dumped her body near Georgetown. And even though he contradicted himself numerous times during this confession, even though he was shown crime scene evidence like photos before the confession, photos that included the Oklahoma matchbooks, he was still convicted. Then years later, an investigative journalist discovered that Lucas had been paid for working at Southeast Color Coat back in Jacksonville before, during, after the murder supposedly took place, that he deposited his paycheck in Jacksonville at this time. And Jacksonville is just over a thousand miles from Georgetown. And Henrietta, Oklahoma is almost another 400 miles up north of Georgetown. So this alibi is why Bush didn't execute him. Highly unlikely he committed this particular murder. More on all of his confessions and why he confessed, confessed a bit later. Otis and Henry stayed in Jacksonville, worked at that local roofing company until the end of 1981. And then on November 1st, 1981, little Frida, a.k.a. Becky's mama, Drusilla, either hung herself or overdosed, or overdosed, excuse me, depending on which source you read. She was 37. Frank and Becky were now 14, and Henry was still obsessed with Becky. And Becky, who was described as being mildly mentally impaired, was obsessed with Henry. 
With no one else in Otis's family stepping up to watch them, the kids fell into the temporary care of Otis and Henry until social workers from Child Protective Services found out what was going on and swooped in to take them uh, and place them in state care. Frank ended up being sent to a state home for children with severe mental disabilities. And Becky, uh, and now she was just going by Becky, was placed in foster care. Sometime in early 1982, again, depending on the source, Becky either ran away from foster care or Henry came and picked her up. And she, Otis, and Henry headed off towards Texas with her. And we know the three of them were together. Uh, Becky would have now been either 14 or 15. She turned 15 on February 27, 1967. And if now 45-year-old Henry Lee Lucas wasn't having sex with her before, he was now. He probably was before. And Otis didn't have a problem with this uh, other than, you know, he was jealous that Henry wasn't with him because he had no personal understanding of what was a sexually acceptable relationship thanks to his combination of a terribly dysfunctional childhood and a low IQ. Six days after taking off with Becky, Henry and Otis would claim to have raped and killed another victim on I-20 between Abilene, Texas and Colorado City, Colorado. In Scottsdale, they said they dumped this woman's head in the desert. And then after that, Otis went back to Florida alone and would never see his niece Becky alive again. Why did Otis leave? Once again, conflicting stories from conflicting sources. There are essentially two main versions of why this happened. In version number one, Otis gets sick. His liver acts up and his skin suddenly looks very jaundiced. And he grows increasingly sluggish and starts to vomit every time he tries to eat. He'd been drinking hard since he was a little kid and his body was just, you know, getting real beat up. And he would eventually die in prison from cirrhosis. So we do know he did have liver problems. And according to this version, he decides to head back to Jacksonville where he has relatives uh, and he wants to check into a hospital there. Maybe he can get some help, you know, post uh, hospital treatment from those relatives. And Henry and Becky don't want to return to Jacksonville because Becky's a minor still. And the state's going to put her back in foster care. And Henry doesn't want that because, you know, if she's put in state custody, how is he supposed to keep molesting her? In version number two, Otis is disgusted with Henry's relationship with his young niece. But again, not because Henry's a pedophile. He's bothered because he's jealous. He loves Henry, wants Henry only to fuck him. In this version, he and Otis do fuck up sometimes or do fuck sometimes. They hook up sometimes here and there behind Becky's back. And uh, she catches him, catches him in the act. And she tells Henry it's either her or Otis. And Henry says he wants to wait until they make it to the Western Texas state line before choosing who he's going to continue to be with. Then he chooses Becky. <laughs> Fucked up this is, that is this entire arrangement. Like what a dark romantic tryst. Are you going to stay with the guy who you supposedly kidnap people and kill him with? Or are you going to keep fucking that guy's underage niece? My God, behind door number two, we have his niece. After Henry makes his choice, he chooses Becky. Henry and Becky continue their journey alone or just the two of them, and they go on to uh, Beaumont. One night, while they're hitchhiking on the I-10 State Route 79, uh, an antique dealer named Jack Smart from the small Southern California Riverside County desert city of Hamet picks him up and even gives him an apartment to live in. In return for living in this apartment, Henry's given odd jobs to do in Jack's shop and home. By now, Becky is presenting herself as the wife of Henry. And when Jack's 80-year-old, nearly blind mother, Kate Rich, needs, needs someone to look after her, Henry and Becky are asked by Jack to do that. And I have no idea why these people were not very bothered by Henry and Becky's age difference. Maybe these other people were also kid fuckers. Henry and Becky impress Jack and his family with their hard work. And in May of 1982, they take a Greyhound bus to Ringold, Ring, Ringgold in Montague County in Texas to care for Kate. Ringgold is a little unincorporated community of no more than 100 people in north central Texas located right off the Texas-Oklahoma border. Mostly dirt roads and beat up old homes with the occasional nice home of a local cattle baron sprinkled in. Very Wild West looking. You can picture the James Younger gang riding through an area like this, you know, back in the day. High desert and sagebrush. 
cattle and coyotes. By the end of the month, Henry and Becky are thrown out of the house by two of Kate's daughters after being suspected of forging checks under Kate's name. And based on Henry's criminal past, I'm guessing he for sure did forge those checks. A general store clerk alerted Kate's daughters that Henry was stealing from their mom. Her daughters then visited their mother's house, the house Henry and Becky were also supposed to keep clean, find it filthy and unkept, and they fire the two and give them bus fare to get the hell out of town. Instead of taking the bus, Henry keeps the money, decides that they should hitchhike back to California instead. And then they're doing just that, and then they get picked up by a preacher named Reuben Moore, who is running a small religious community called the House of Prayer in Stoneburg, a town whose population never exceeded 150 and hovers around 50 now. It's no more than 10 minutes south of Ringgold in Texas. Take a Google Earth gander at this place if you want to feel depressed or better about wherever you live. I don't, I like to call places shitholes because I think about, you know, how some of you are bound to live in those places. But holy shithole, Stoneberg is, in my opinion, I'm guessing the opinion of, of every person on earth whose opinion I respect, a colossal fucking dump. It's not even a town. It's an assortment of really beat up and dilapidated old single wide trailers on lots of nothing but dirt and weeds and brush and litter. In the Texas desert, 10 minutes outside of the little 5,000 person Texas town of, of Bowie or Bowie. And while I think, you know, Bowie might have some charm, I'm guessing a fair amount of people would also label it as a shithole. And I'm guessing that many of the people of Bowie make fun of the people who live in Stoneburg. So Henry and young Becky head to the dusty little fucking shithole of Stoneburg and live on a religious compound. And they love it because they have no idea what a good life is supposed to look like. Reuben offers them a place to stay in exchange for Henry working as a roofer and general repairman. Becky also helps with the chores. And to Henry's strong displeasure, Becomes a firm believer in Christ. It's going to be hard to keep killing strangers and fucking their corpses on the side of the road if he suddenly has a Christian riding shotgun. Total buzzkill. And then after she finds Jesus, Becky gets homesick and wants to return to Jacksonville. It's almost like she was a confused and scared child and just wanted to go home. Henry tells her that they'll head back, but he has no intention of keeping that promise and taking her back to Jacksonville. He's afraid that she's going to tell someone what she's seen him do. He claimed to have killed several hitchhikers while she was uh, on the road with him and Otis. On Henry's 46th birthday, August 23rd, 1982, he agrees to take 15-year-old Becky home. And how gross, by the way, he is over three times her age. That's never good relationship math, over three times the age of the other person. They, they pack everything they own into three suitcases. Reuben gives them a lift on August 24th to a truck stop in Alvord, Texas, about 25 minutes away. Alvord, little 1,500-person town just past Bowie. Uh, based on more Google pics, for sure another shithole. Sorry if you live there, but holy hell. This whole fucking part of Texas looks like some post-apocalyptic fucking dump. Looks about as appealing to live in as uh, central Nevada. If you live in one of those places and you're pissed, well, you know what? Travel to any other part of the country, like anywhere else. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Send in pictures of where you live in your town. And then send in pictures of like, I don't know, any place in Idaho, Montana, or basically any other state. <laughs> and see which one looks better. You have one life. Do not waste it in Alfred, Texas. Save your money. Get the fuck out. If someone told me, you have two choices, you can either kill yourself and go to hell, or you can live in Alfred, Texas. I'd be like, I thought, I'm sorry, I thought you said I had two choices. You just, that's the same thing, just presented in two different ways. I know that's brutal, but I've been to a lot of towns. I've been to every state in the country. And uh, some of them don't need to exist anymore, right? Can we be honest about that? Some people are like, oh, we got to fight for our town, or not. Or you can just let it go, move to a better place. Not every place that some idiots decided to settle down in at one point needs to keep being a town. Anyway, after getting dropped off, Becky and Henry got two rides that took them to Denton, Texas, and then they waited on an access road to the interstate, but no one picked them up. 
They decided to make their way down to a nearby field, make camp before nightfall. They undid their bedroll, settled down to sleep. And then Henry said he decided to try to persuade Becky to go back to the house of prayer. Said he was scared of getting in trouble if they went back to Jacksonville. Then he said they started to argue. And finally, Henry told her he'd made up his mind and they were going back to the church compound in Stoneburg. And he said that Becky screamed and hit him on the side of the head. And that pissed Henry off. He claimed he just snapped and stabbed her with a knife to the chest. And then he said he just, she just sat there stunned for a few seconds and fell over dead. He said that at first he was shocked that he killed Becky and then he really loved her. But after his initial shock wore off, he became pretty you know, aroused and he took off her clothes and had sex with her corpse. It's, it's like Henry's motto in life was, when life gives you lemons, you, you just, you fuck them. You just start fucking them. Uh, I highly doubt Henry ever intended to bring her back to Jacksonville. I bet he knew she was dead the moment they decided to leave that church compound. No way he's going to risk her ratting him out. After he kills her and cuts her up into tiny pieces and stuffs her remains into three pillows, uh, you know, uh, he, he uh, you know, leaves and scatters on the field. He, he claims that after he killed Becky, he started hearing her voice in his head, just like he used to hear his mother's voice after he killed her. And just like with his mother, Becky's voice taunts him and harasses him. It's getting crowded in that crazy old head of his. After scattering Becky's remains around, he washes up as best he can, hitchhikes back to the house of prayer, tells Reuben that Becky had just taken off with the truck driver and left him. And man, he's so sad about it. Reuben believed him enough to offer him time and space to recover from his, his loss. A few weeks later, while he's, you know, he's all recovered now, a nearly blind octogenarian, or yeah, octogenarian, Kate Rich, that, that eight-year-old lady Henry had forged checks to steal from, uh, contacts Henry. Always thinking it was Henry who was the one who had done the stealing, she had stayed in contact with Becky, who she liked, uh, when her daughters had kicked the two of them out of her house, but she hadn't heard from Becky in a few weeks. Wanted to know where Becky was. Henry told her she'd, you know, left him and that, you know, they'd split and she had, and she had more questions. She didn't believe him. She was a little more... Uh, interrogative than old uh, Reuben was. Finally, he agrees to drive Kate to church, you know, one Sunday mid-September to kind of reassure her, talk to her more about Becky's disappearance. He takes Reuben's car to pick her up. And then instead of driving her to church, he drives her off the highway down an old dirt road, far away from prying eyes. And then he took out a butcher's knife that he brought just for this occasion and plunged it straight into her chest. He pulled her body out of the car before she bled all over the place then cut her up, stuffed her remains into a big drainage pipe running underneath the road. When Kate's neighbors found out that both she and Becky had gone missing in the same short period of time and that both were last seen alive with Henry Lee Lucas, they became suspicious and contacted authorities. The local Montague County Sheriff, Sheriff Conway, had no evidence to suggest Becky or Kate were dead, but he and Texas Ranger Phil Ryan suspected Henry, of course, and brought him in for some questioning. Henry denied all knowledge of having anything to do with the disappearance of either woman, and he was released after he passed a polygraph test. And then the first thing Henry did when he was released from interrogation was to go back to the drain where he stuffed Kate's remains, threw them in a bag, brought them back to the House of Prayer compound where they had an incinerator, and he reduced what was left of Kate Rich to ashes. And then he took off for Mexico. At least that's what he said. One, one time, that's what he said. Maybe he took off towards Blacksburg. Maybe he stayed close by in Texas. According to Henry, wherever he went, he was killing and robbing again. And by the following spring, he'd run out of money. And he called his old Texas preacher, you know, Reuben Moore, his old buddy, to see if he could get his old place back to stay. And Reuben told him, yeah, of course. You know, you're always welcome to return. What Reuben didn't tell him was that he had no intention of helping Henry again. And that he'd been talking to the police and the police were looking for Henry, still suspecting him for the murders of Kate Rich and Frieda Becky Powell. By this time, Reuben himself suspected Henry of their deaths and wanted to see Henry get put behind bars before he hurt anyone else. Now, before we go further, what about Otis? Where, where's old tool time? Where's he been? After leaving Henry Lee and Becky somewhere in Texas in early 1982, Otis had a really rough trip back to Jacksonville. He started crashing abandoned homes again. And on three separate occasions, 
He stepped on the rotten wood of an old porch, fell through, and sunk a nail into his head and didn't go to a doctor any time. Ouch. One of those nails penetrated his skull directly between his eyes, and it sunk a good six inches into his brain. And then he pulled it back at himself with a pair of pliers and then jerked off and did some fire as he burned down the house. Of course, I'm kidding. His story is naturally insane. We don't need to spice it up with three more nails uh, to the head wounds. The only thing he talked about regarding heading back to Jacksonville was nearly being eaten alive one night by some hombre sino ants just outside of Austin. He got drunk, passed down the backyard of a vacant house. And when he woke up, thousands of those little deadly bastards were carrying his body back to their mound to feed their queen. Queen ombre asino ants are fucking terrifying. While the soldier ant has three-inch mandibles, the queen has mandibles up to two feet long, and their body can weigh anywhere from 250 to 400 pounds. And they can be from six to eight feet long. There's ants and up to five feet tall. And if you've been listening to this suck for a while, at least since the Pedro Lopez suck, you know that I'm fucking full of shit right now. Ombrosino ants only live here in the suck first. But God, I hope, I hope at least one of you just believe just for a second, maybe for two seconds, that there was a queen ant out there roughly the size of a pony. Okay, for real now. Otis headed back to Jacksonville, showed up at his sister's house, where soon after arriving, the police showed up and questioned him about his niece, you know, Frida, her disappearance, or Becky's disappearance. He really didn't know where Henry and, and Becky had gone, but the police didn't believe him, and his car was impounded, and he was released and then told not to leave town. And then maybe he got some medical treatment for his liver, maybe not. Again, stories differ. And for the next year, the now 35-year-old Otis went back to his old life of crashing in abandoned homes, staying with relatives, couch surfing, setting some homes on fire, probably jerking off and coming into the flames like a complete fucking psychopath. In April of 1983, Otis was brought in on an arson charge for torching up one of the homes he stayed in. He ended up getting a 20-year prison sentence just for that crime. After being taken into custody and investigated for other Jacksonville arsons, he ended up confessing to another fire where a man died, where a man was burned to death inside the home, and it was intentional. On January 4th, 1982, uh, 1982, Tool had barricaded 64-year-old George Sonnenberg in a boarding house where he was living in Jacksonville and set it on fire. Tool signed a confession stating that he and Sonnenberg had begun a sexual relationship, and after the two had an argument, Tool set Sonnenberg's home on fire. Otis also ended up confessing to the murder of 19-year-old Ada Mildred Johnson, two and a half hours away in Tallahassee. Ada was reported missing by her parents on February 18th. They'd last seen her on the 9th, and a couple searching for firewood in the woods found Ada's body on February 27th. She'd been shot in the back of the head, cut with a knife, and what appeared to be a possible mugging gone wrong. Okay, so now back to June, 1983. While Toole is awaiting trial for a double homicide and arson, Henry shows, or two different homicides and arson, Henry shows back up at Ruben's compound on the 14th. After letting him crash for the night in his old shack, making him feel like he could just pick up right back where he left off, uh, you know, and be the compound handyman in exchange for a place to stay, Pastor Moore had Henry run an errand for him the following day to a place he'd prearranged with the police. And on June 15th, 1983, Henry Lee Lucas drives straight into a police ambush. Neither he nor Otis would ever be free men again. Henry ro rolled into town, was stopped by Texas Ranger, that Phil Ryan fella. Under the guise of a routine traffic stop, Ryan and local police knew they didn't have enough evidence to arrest him for the murder of Kate Ridge. They weren't even sure Becky was dead, but they figured pulling him over would lead to something they could put him behind bars for, and they were right. An inspection of the inside of his vehicle revealed an unregistered handgun. As a felon, it was illegal for Henry to possess such a weapon. And then Ranger Ryan and the police may have overlooked a few of Lucas's basic human rights when they interrogated him. Uh, they did not give him a state-appointed attorney like he asked for. 
They grilled him about Kate's disappearance for hours, refusing to give him water, food, or cigarettes. They stripped him down to his underwear, threw him in a cold cell, refused to give him his clothes back when he asked for them. And all of this would almost cost them their case against him. After hours of being interrogated and deprived of cigarettes, basic sustenance, even the dignity of wearing clothes, Lucas began to confess under clear duress and police began to reward him as he confessed with clothes, food, water, coffee, cigarettes, etc. And he told them everything about Kate's murder. He signed his confession. Then he got his lawyer who tried to throw out the signed confession. Uh, but it didn't do any good because Henry just confessed again and again and again. And then later when they began pushing him to talk about Becky's disappearance, he confessed to her murder as well. Bone fragments presumed to be riches were found in a stove at the house of prayer. Skeletal remains of the same sex and approximate age as Becky were found in a field where Lucas claims to have killed her, though the coroner would not positively identify them as who they were claimed to be. Just days later, Lucas pled guilty to the two murders in court and then shocked everyone in the court by claiming to have committed over 100 additional murders, saying in court, and I've killed about 100 other women too. And then over the following months, he kept pouring out confessions to hundreds and hundreds of murders. A Lucas task force led by the Texas Rangers was quickly formed to examine the validity of all these claims. In November of 1983, he was transferred to Williamson County, Texas, where he would confess to 213 unsolved murders and then keep confessing to more after that. Why did Lucas confess to so many murders? While it's just speculation, most investigators who worked on his case seemed to think that, for one, he didn't really mind being incarcerated. He liked knowing he wouldn't have to steal or work for his next meal. He liked knowing he'd have a bed to sleep in every night in jail. You know, he had, he had amenities like access to TV. He could play card games with other prisoners. He had a steady sex life. Again, men not his first choice, but he did seem to be, you know, uh, sexually satisfied with them. Uh, you know, two, he liked the attention the confessions gave him. The more murders he confessed to, the more visitors he got. Became like a celebrity in the, in, in the jail. The more attention he received from other inmates. He wasn't just another dirtbag. He was the most prolific serial killer, goddammit, in American history. Gave him notoriety. Three, he was already serving life in prison. So what did he care about confessing to more murders? Apparently, prosecutors tricked him when it came to confessing to murdering Deborah Ornstock Jackson. He didn't realize that the death penalty was on the table for that confession. Uh, he got to leave prison. You know, another thing. He got to travel around the country, eat at nice restaurants, diners, donut shops, donut shops. God, uh, supposedly even be given alcohol. And according to one source, a source I don't believe, but it's part of the Lucas legend, uh, one night he was rewarded for solving a few cases with some prostitutes. In December of 1983, word reaches Tool in Florida that Lucas is getting all kinds of perks for cooperating with investigators. And Lucas had told them that they killed, you know, many people together. And he and Lucas talk on the phone and Tool figures out real quick that he'll be given the same perks if he talks too. So he starts confessing to fucking everything. Basically, over the next year, these two would confess to every case placed in front of them. Uh, in early 1984, some investigators began to really doubt all of these claims, right? They overdid it. Texas Ranger Phil Ryan, again, one of the guys who helped arrest him, would later report that Lucas became so accustomed to lavish treatment from law enforcement for cooperating that he soon began to kind of think of himself as the boss around this situation. Like he's like he's running this operation. He starts to dictate orders to other Rangers who often obey them. He's loving this attention. It's all going to his head. Ryan reported that he became concerned about the veracity of most of Lucas's confessions, feeling confident in the accuracy of only two, right? Kate Rich and Becky further stated to the Houston Chronicle that I wouldn't bet a paycheck on any of the others. Ryan started uh, inventing utterly fictional crimes to which Lucas would generally confess involvement, a tactic also employed in 1984 by Dallas detective Linda Irwin. Irwin interviewed Lucas after he confessed to 13 murders in Houston alone. Irwin reports that when I heard it got to be hundreds and hundreds of confessions, it was unbelievable to me. Irwin further reported that like Ryan, she assembled an utterly fictional crime saying, 
I fabricated the case using random photographs from old murders long since solved and details pulled from my imagination. He claimed credit for the phony crime and his confession containing facts that I had dribbled out to him probably could have convinced a jury to convict him. <laughs> uh, Ryan reports the manner in which Lucas typically confessed to a number of unsolved murders. If, if a police agency suspected Lucas and if Lucas admitted involvement and his total of some 3,000 confessions suggested he rarely denied involvement, they would send uh, the Lucas task force a case file with information pertaining to the unsolved crime. And then Lucas would be questioned at length and sometimes be allowed to read the police reports in advance. So he could learn a number of details previously unknown or known only to the police. And then he would just use those details to weave a confession together. In 1985, and, and they're doing it, I get their motivation. Like they're doing it from just a, a you know, bureaucratic way of like, ah, we're probably not going to fucking solve these murders. It'll make people happy. Who cares? This guy's already in prison. Let's just fucking get him off the books. Not saying that you should do that, but I get their motivation. Like they get to look like heroes. They probably got fucking promotions and all kinds of stuff for clearing all these crimes. In 1985, a Dallas newspaper publishes an article about how Henry would have to have driven 11,000 miles in just one month to commit the murders he claimed he had committed in that month. The FBI became doubtful about Henry's claims. In an interview with the Houston agent, he was asked if he had helped commit murders in Guyana, as in the Jonestown massacre murders. And Henry said, oh, hell yeah, sure I did. And then he said he couldn't remember if Guyana was in Louisiana or Texas. Guyana, of course, is, in, is thousands of miles away, Central America, where cult leader and suck subject Jim Jones persuaded hundreds of his followers to commit suicide right at the Jonestown settlement. Uh, at one point, <laughs> Otis and Henry would complain that, or would, would uh, c- confess that they actually supplied Jim Jones with the poison he used. They just fucking anything, anything at all. They would just say, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. More journalists started to dig into the various claims of Lucas, uh, and, and they found, you know, records of Henry's employment, credit card receipts, other evidence that would establish that most of his confessions were bullshit. He couldn't have been in the place that he said he was. Investigators quickly came to the same conclusions about Otis Toole. The two of them didn't help themselves by, by talking to each other on the phone more and more, coming up with more outrageous lies together, like that secret satanic society called the Hands of Death, recruiting them, ordering them to kill on their behalf. They claimed that other serial killers were part of the Hands of Death, like Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was a member of this group. Then they claimed that they killed a lot of the victims that Bundy supposedly went to you know, jail for, or that he killed. They're fucking we're killing everybody. They claimed they participated in black market snuff films for the hands of death. Uh, they fucking, they killed Jimmy Hoffa. They claimed to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. And then Otis started making claims like he ate some of his victims. You know, Henry would say, nah, I didn't like to eat them. He didn't like the way that the, the barbecue sauce that Otis was using. There's all these kind of weird barbecue sauce memes about Otis Tool. I don't, I don't think he actually probably ate anybody, but he would claim that. Nothing backs that up. And they, just, they just like wanted to shock and become whatever people led them, whatever path investigators led them down. Like, did you actually eat people? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I ate, I ate a lot of people. Like they would just go with whatever. In response to these claims to reports of the Lucas Task Force questionable investigative methodology, the Texas Attorney General's Office issued a study sometimes called the Lucas Report in 1986. The bulk of the Lucas Report was devoted to a detailed timeline of Lucas's claim murders. The report compared Lucas's claims to reliable, verifiable sources for Lucas's whereabouts. And the results often contradicted his confessions. Texas Attorney General Jim Maddox wrote that when Lucas was confessing to hundreds of murders, those with custody of Lucas did nothing to bring an end to this hoax. I'm sure some rangers lost their jobs over this. He said, and we have found information that would lead us to believe that some officials cleared cases just to get them off the books. Mm-hmm. Here are a few examples of crimes Lucas Task Force ruled closed based on Lucas's confessions when strong evidence has been cited, including Lucas being far from the scene of the crime. Uh, Lucas confessed to the August 10th, 1977 murder of Kirby Reeves in Smith County, Texas, when payroll records indicated that Lucas was working a full shift 
that day at the Kalen Mushroom Company in Kalen, Pennsylvania. Lucas confessed to the March 20th, 1979 murder of Elaine Tollett in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Medical records indicate he was in the hospital that day in Bluefield, West Virginia. So that's kind of hard to pull off. Maybe he was a fucking teleporter. Maybe like some people believe that Sasquatch can like fucking teleport in and out. Maybe, maybe, uh, you know, Henry Lee Lucas is Bigfoot. Uh, Chris Piazza, then a prosecutor in Little Rock, Arkansas, wrote of a specific 1981 robbery murder case in which Lucas claimed involvement that the testimony of Henry Lee Lucas is dubious to say the least and that Lucas's testimony was inaccurate in nearly every detail. So now, no more field trips. Special perks for Tool and Lucas. The dog and pony show is over. On September 15th, 1996, at the age of 49, Otis Tool would die in his prison cell from liver failure. He was buried in the prison cemetery. No one claimed his body. He ended up being charged with six murders, the arson killing, the murder of 19-year-old Ada Mildred Johnson, and four others. On March 12th, 2001, at 11 p.m., Lucas was found dead in prison from heart failure. He was 64. He was buried at Captain Joe Bird Cemetery in Huntsville, Texas. As of 2012, Lucas's grave is unmarked due to vandalism and theft. Otis would end up being convicted of, or I'm sorry, Lucas would end up being convicted of 12 murders, but only three. His mother, Kay Rich and Becky Powell, seemed definitively tied to him. The other nine murders he received life or lengthy prison sentences for were Deborah Orange Sox Jackson. We know now he didn't kill her. Linda Phillips, 26-year-old teacher from Kaufman County, Texas, stabbed to death on August 1970. Clemmy E. Curtis, police officer from Cabell County, West Virginia, shot in August of 76. Lily Pearl Darty, 18, raped and shot in Harrison County, Texas, November 77. Diana Bryant, strangled to death in Brownfield, Texas. Glenna, uh, Glenna Biggers, 66-year-old woman stabbed with a 14-inch knife, three-pronged fork in Hale County, Texas, December 82. An unidentified female raped and strangled in Montgomery County, Texas, sometime before March 17, 1983. And Laura Jean Domez, 16-year-old, beaten and strangled, Montgomery County, Texas, April 13th, 1983. And that all takes us out of this uh, big old whopping Texas tale of a time suck timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So what a weird story, right? I mean, most of what you heard today uh, might be true or maybe very little of it. I can't think of any other killers who confessed to crimes, a lot of crimes, they for sure didn't commit. What a strange game they played. Both of them seem to have had the, uh, you know, two of the worst childhoods ever, but can you even trust that to be true? Uh, they, they feel like real life boogeymen to me. Their story feels almost more like a horror folklore than reality. Like who the fuck were these guys? We'll never really know. Monsters who did God's knows, God knows what. Monsters who like to trick as much as they like to harm. Uh, I watched prison interviews with both of them, and what's really disturbing is how much they both relished the attention of people thinking that they were very prolific serial killers. I mean, I mean, that's fucked up whether they did it or not. Either way, they both clearly loved being infamous. They loved the attention, even though the attention was given to them because people believed they were some of the biggest pieces of shit that ever lived. And that desire for any kind of fame feels very relevant to me in today's culture. You know, like a fair amount of reality TV stars, social media stars seem to just want to be famous and not care why they're famous. Like you hear kids now, I know as a parent, you know, you hear kids now talk about how many YouTube subscribers or Instagram followers somebody has. And sometimes it seems like these kids I, I talk to like these people be only because they have so many followers, only because they're quote unquote famous. They think it's cool how famous they are, but they don't really seem to care about what they actually did to become famous. How strange. 
right? To admire someone just because they're popular, as opposed to admiring them for their artistic talent or inspirational story, point of view, or, you know, whatever, something like that. I like the artists I like regardless of who else likes them. I like some artists that are very popular and I like some artists that almost fucking nobody knows. You know, I've always liked to think for myself to the point that I truly understand why you would want to live any other way. Like, you know, why do you like so-and-so? They have 50 million subscribers. They're famous. Who gives a fuck? Don't be a sheep. Follow your own interests. Life is short. Don't waste it following a pack you're not even sure you want to be a part of. Examine your own interests. You'll lead a much more authentic and rewarding life. And you can say, hey, 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 you are perpetuating the fame of these two dirtbags by talking about them now. Hypocrite alert. Kind of, but not exactly. I'm spreading knowledge about these dirtbags, but I'm not glorifying them, right? I, I, I never pretend they're not monsters. I never think they're cool. I also make it clear, you know, like, fuck these guys. If they were still alive and somehow for I wouldn't piss on them if they were on fire. Uh, some people call themselves uh, fans, fans of true crime. I am not a true crime fan. I'm not a fan of any of these criminals. I think they're all pieces of shit. I'm curious about them. I'm curious as to what type of childhoods helped create these monsters. I'm curious about why they behave like they did, how someone could go that far off the rails, but not a fan. Sometimes people ask, you know, who's your favorite serial killer? None of them. None of them are my favorite. I don't have a favorite because they're fucking terrible, all of them. I have some I'm very fascinated by, but that's it. I would rather put bullets in the heads of monsters like these guys, if they were still alive, than get an autograph from any of them. Like, fuck these guys. I'm a fan of Da Vinci. I'm a fan of Harriet Tubman. I'm a fan of Martin Luther King. I'm a fan of Elliot Roosevelt. You know, did I say Elliot? Eleanor, whatever. You know who I'm talking about. Maybe there's a person out there named Elliot Roosevelt. Fucking, I should have just left that and be like, I like fucking Elliot Roosevelt. And you'd be doing Google search. Who the fuck is Elliot Roosevelt? A great person. A great artist. No, I'm a fan of JFK. You know, people who did an incredible amount of good stuff. I'm inspired by their lives. Uh, I'm just macabrely interested in the lives of these assholes. And to be totally honest, I, I love making fun of them. I love it. I enjoy the hell out of telling dark jo- jokes at the expense of these dark-minded folks. And I feel like there's almost no limits to the jokes because they're so fucking horrible. I mean, come on! Seth Coxcurry? Telling you might be a killer jokes? That's fun, right? Come on, that's dark fun. Uh, why am I comedically amused by their dark tales? I don't fucking know. I don't know. I probably need a therapist to tell me that. Maybe because it makes me feel better about my own life to look at theirs. I make plenty of mistakes, but I've never choked out anyone. I've never raped anyone, never killed my mom. Is that one of the reasons some of us, you know, or many of us, or most of us like these stories? Is that part of it? They make us feel better about ourselves? I hope you feel better about yourself right now. I hope you didn't listen to this suck and think, wow, wow, I, geez, I'd hate to think, hate to hear what Dan thinks of me. <laughs> I have done way more bad shit than those two amateurs. And now I'm babbling. Let's, t- let's get out of here. Let's wrap it up with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Henry Lee Lucas had one friend growing up when he's growing up in a dirt floor cabin in Blacksburg, Virginia, and that friend was a mule. And his mom shot, shot that friend in the fucking face. If you had only one friend growing up and your mama shot that friend in the face with a shotgun in front of you, you might be a killer. Number two, Henry Lee Lucas claimed to have killed hundreds of people. He would only be convicted of 12 murders outside of his confessions. Actual evidence only links him to three murders, his mama, his teen lover, Becky, and 80-year-old one-time employer, Kate Rich. Number three, Otis Toole spent his teenage years working as a prostitute and getting boners burning down abandoned homes in Jacksonville, Florida. If you sold your literal ass for cash when you should have been attending high school freshman orientation and your main turn on 
is burning a building to the ground, you might be a killer. Number four, despite their infamy, despite all the time they spent traveling around together, there's no hard evidence linking the duo of Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole to a single murder committed together. Found that interesting. Number five, new info. Despite all my talk about the murders they probably did not commit, there's one very, very famous homicide that I've not mentioned that many think to this day that Otis Toole did commit. In 2008, 27 years after the 1981 murder of Adam Walsh, 12 years after Otis's death, authorities officially named Toole as the likely killer. If you don't recall, Adam Walsh was the son of John Walsh, and his death and not knowing who killed his son inspired John to help bring closure to other families, help bring other criminals to justice, and he went on to create and then host the most famous and effective crime show ever, America's Most Wanted. Otis Toole is believed to have killed the kid that led to the creation of a show that has caught more felons than any other show. Over his 23-year run, America's Most Wanted led to the arrests of 1,154 people by various law enforcement agencies, tons of murderers put behind bars. 17 of the FBI's most wanted criminals caught in like the top 10 most wanted due to this show. Toole claimed to have picked Walsh up in a Sears Mall parking lot in Hollywood, Florida on July 27th, 1981. Toole said he offered little kid candy and toys and that Walsh came willingly. Walsh soon wanted to go home, began crying. Toole said he then punched him in the face. Walsh started crying more and according to Toole, he began to wallop Walsh, knocking him out. Toole eventually pulled over in a rural area and decapitated the young boy with a machete. He drove around for several days with Walsh's head in the car, forgot about it, and upon rediscovering it, tossed it into a nearby canal. Police then inexplicably lost Tool's impounded car when they later would pick him up for arson and everything, and his blood-stained carpeting, hindering their ability to proceed with the investigation. Tool would confess this crime in 1983 and then recant his confession, but John Walsh, who devoted the majority of his adult life to capturing criminals, continued to believe that Otis did it. And Walsh knew all about Toole's false confessions. And no one knew more about his son's case than John. And if Toole committed that murder, who knows how many of his other claims might have been true, right? Well, many of his and Henry's claims were shot down. There is still technically a chance that they committed hundreds of murders, right? And a lot of those murders are still unsolved if they didn't in fact do them. And a lot of those murders, they may have been there. Their murderous mystery will probably continue forever. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The confession killer sucked. Interesting tale, right? What a tough suck that was trying to figure out. Even solid sources like Newsweek Time, New York Times, variety of established Texas newspapers like the Houston Chronicle would contradict one another. It's ridiculous when you dig into this. It's like, it's like, there's, it's like there's not a single timeline or anything that has the dates that are the same or the names that are the same. It's fucking crazy. And it's not because the sources were doing a bad job. No, it's because those two dickheads kept changing their story. Interview after interview, they would just give different dates, different names, different places for what they were doing, what they did. Drove me fucking crazy trying to put it all together. Uh, and I couldn't figure out if they were just like, you know, kind of like criminal masterminds, just fucking with people or just too dumb to remember their lies. Uh, but I did get to crack myself up with all the Steph Coxcurry jokes. I, I hope that was worth it. Hope you enjoyed them. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsey Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Bellacamp, Reverend Dr. Joe, Horsecock Johnson, Paisley, Moretta. Coming up soon. Thanks to the Bit Elixir app design crew. New update currently in the final beta test. I know I've been saying that, but we've just got one problem. There's literally one last problem that we're trying to fix so that it, it, it just really works well and you can enjoy all the bell, bells and whistles without being like, God damn, fuck this thing. 
because it's great. Thanks to Axis Apparel, Script Keeper, Zach uh, Flannery. Next week, we suck Mormonism. Oh, it sucks some Mormons. Can't wait to fucking suck them so hard. Just grab a hold of that Mormon knowledge, you know? Put it in my fucking mouth and just fucking wrap my lips around it. Uh, we dig into the history of the Church of Latter-day Saints. How did they get to Utah? What do they believe? How did their religion form? Who was Joseph Smith? Who was Brigham Young? What is the FDLS? How does it differentiate between, you know, the, how do you differentiate between the FDLS and LDS? Who's Warren Jeffs? Why is he in prison right now? It's going to be fascinating. The Mormons have a very fascinating history, fascinating beliefs. And I don't think many non-Mormons know much about them, but we will soon. If you listen, cannot wait. Hail Nimrod. Uh, time now for Time Sucker Updates. And again, stick around for that new Moretta track at the very end of the show. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Today's first update is, you know, just cool as shit. I love a variety of perspectives. I'm not religious, but I love hearing from religious suckers. This message comes in from cool-ass Christian sucker, Jacob Good, who is good, who writes, to whom it may suck. I just wanted to say a few things. One, I'm a devout Christian college student, and I'm shocked at how similar some of our experiences are. I was kicked out of my youth group for asking questions and pointing about the hypocrisy in the church as well, or in the church uh, as well. A group that claims to be centered around love and forgiveness sure seems to have an agenda similar to that of the flat earth weirdos and that there is a huge lack of thinking for oneself and general decency. Sucks to hear that you were treated poorly by religious fundamentalists. My motto is don't be a jerk for Jesus. And I agree with you on so much. I'm not bashing my own beliefs. I just want you to know that I recognize and agree with most of your thoughts on organized religion. People need to learn and think for themselves. Second, I just listened to the Westboro Baptist uh, Church episode and boy, did that work me up. My dad is a Marine and the more I learned about them, the more I worked up in absolute rage. Anyways, this is the email I sent into the church email address after listening to that suck. The Bible says that greater love has no man than this, than he who lays down his life for his friend. However, you'd probably say that those texts were added to deceive us. My father has served this country for over 30 years as United States Marine. He has fought alongside men with the fortitude and courage that you wouldn't believe. He has seen friends, mentors, sons, and daughters throw themselves into harm's way to save others. My father has been a man to jump in front of bullets to save others. He has received the Purple Heart for his incredible bravery, and he deserves so much more. He is the bravest man I know, and the fact that you cower here in America where you have the privilege of free speech— and you use that privilege to press your oppressive, ignorant, inbred hate speech regarding homosexuals and the armed forces, it is truly abominable. As angry as this makes me, Jesus does love you. Don't ask me how or why, but he does. And I hope and pray you realize you don't reflect the reason he died for us and you see the hurt that you cause. Also, the single out of context verses you pull from the word of God to fuel your horrible propaganda is deceitful on a level I have never seen. Hate is easy to give. Love is a choice we make. Love makes us human. And he says, anyways, you're welcome. That was fucking beautiful. Anyways, you're welcome for this novel of an email. I'm passionate and I love your stuff. Keep up the good work. Don't worry about me being a Christian. I'll be that great Christian friend who never tries to convert you, knowing full well I know where I'm going. And in fire letters, do you? Hailbo Jangles, uh, San Diego, California. Man, thank you, Mr. Good. Uh, first of all, thanks to you for being such a cool son to your dad. Uh, thank your dad for his service, man. I love how much you love your dad. And you also seem to be a wonderful Christian and a wonderful music. And I apologize for making you feel that you needed to write, don't worry about me being a Christian. 
I, I admittedly get too judgy about religion all the time. And I need to be put in my fucking place and, and I'm working on it. I work on it and, and I love uh, you guys are helping me work on it. Just know that, that I know that, that, that me not believing in religion doesn't mean that I think that I'm right because I don't. I think I don't know. And that's very different than thinking I'm right. I think there's a chance Christians could absolutely be right, right? I forget that some days, but I do know it to be true. I haven't been dead. You know, I haven't explored the other side. I haven't come back to report. What the fuck do I know? Not much. Nothing about the other side. I don't know anything. Uh, I love that your faith gives you comfort. I really do. Uh, thank your dad for his uh, service to me again, man. Uh, keep being my Christian friend and just keep being on a beautiful bastard. Uh, thank you for that update. Now for a vaccination update from Dr. Heather, who writes, Hi, King of the Suck and the whole Time Suck team. I'm a pediatrician and just listened to the anti-vaccination suck. I just want to say bravo. You did an amazing job covering how vaccines work, including some immunology, which is very complex. The history of vaccines and why vaccines are safe and save lives. I appreciate you covering this topic because we need to be more vocal and louder than the anti-vaccination faction so that the truth about vaccines can be heard. Ultimately, parents are concerned about their kids, but sometimes misinformed and misguided. I spend so much time discussing the safety of vaccines on a daily basis. Moving forward, I will just refer my patients uh, to your time suck. Uh, oh, patients, i.e. parents. Yeah, thank you. To your time suck, and it will save me loads of times. Ha, keep on sucking, Dr. Heather. Well, hail Nimrod, Dr. Heather. And uh, you know what? Be careful. Be careful which patients you share this suck with. I, I want you to spread the suck, but also maybe not get fired, right? Or lose patience. Let's face it. I say a lot of shit. It's not going to be appreciated by quite a few people. Uh, your email made me very happy. I wish I would have gone uh, further than my bachelor's degree with my education. It makes me feel good to know that some doctors out there don't think I'm a total idiot. Speaking of doctors, fake-ass doctor alert coming in from Time Sucker Stephen Graton. Stephen writes, Dear Dr. Reverend Lord of the Suck, Dan Cummins, I'm writing you today because after meeting with a doctor at my job, she handed me her card. I looked at the name and saw a very Polish-looking name. My first thought was, a Polish woman? How did she ever get the intelligence to even go to school? Followed shortly by the thought of, God damn it, Dan. Your Polish bashing has burrowed its way into my mind. Thought you'd like to know what you've done to me. Hail Nimrod, blessed be Bojangles, be gone, Lucifina, but come back later and praise be to the master sucker, future space lizard, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. I like the first part of your email very much, but just regarding the second part, I haven't tricked you. That Polish imposter tricked you, right? I think it's cute that that woman can dress up like a doctor, but there's no way that she was, she's as good as a man. Listen, we all know that Polish people aren't human. So bottom line, you were tricked and you need to call the hospital and report that fucking beast before they kill somebody because they can't, you know, tell the difference between a stethoscope and a scalpel, all right? Kidding about part of it, about the woman part. Women are every bit as smart as men. I hope you know that. I hope, and I hope you know I was kidding about the Polish people as well, listeners, if you're new. Uh, have I said how I actually think that Polish women are among the world's most uh, sexy and beautiful? I, I, I do believe that. And I think that's why I feel okay teasing them. Polish women are hot as fuck and super smart and often fierce and strong. Just do not tell Queen of the Suck Lindsay I said any of that because we will have it erased from the, the episode. Awesome snake update coming in from Time Sucker Ruben Bates. Ruben writes, hello, oh, holy suck, master, prophet of Nimrod. My name is Ruben. And I just finished the homeless suck. So I'm a little behind. But anyways, don't know if anybody else mentioned this to you, but some snakes like the Taiwanese keelback are both venomous and poisonous. And this is regarding my confusion over the difference between venomous and poisonous. Most snakes are either venomous or non-venomous, but there are exceptions just thought you'd like to know. And remember, if it bites you and you die, it's venomous. If you bite it and you die, it's poisonous. If you bite each other and you like it, it's kinky. Ha! I like it. 
Cracked me up. I first read that fucking really cracked me up. I like your little thing at the end there, Ruben. Love the mix of trivia and humor. And finally, a very, very, very cool update coming in from longtime sucker, Jessica Casillas. Jessica, uh, she's been updating us uh, for a while now, for about two years now, on the progress of her deported husband, who's been stuck out of the country because of certain immigration laws. And uh, been separated from his family, been working his ass off, trying to get back. They've been terrified that he would just be, you know, uh, gone forever and just, you know, forced to live in a country that he actually never lived in other than when he was a baby where he doesn't know anything about it, really. Uh, Dear Master the Suck and Spouse of the Poopery, Hair Queen of the Suck. (laughs) Nice little reference to Lindsay there, her Instagram there. Uh, Yeah, you can follow Lindsay if you're curious about that uh, Queen of the Suck. Uh, I have an update in regard to my husband's immigration process. After 604 days of him being in Mexico, he finally had his appointment for his green card. He got approved. <laughs> yeah! He'll be able to finally come home once he receives necessary paperwork, which can take up to two weeks. He'll finally be able to set foot on U.S. soil for the first time in his life as a legal Im- immigrant. Fuck yeah. Just want to thank you, the queen of the suck and everyone. You kept us in their prayers, thoughts, and all the cocker spaniel sacrifices made to Nimrod to help our cause. I wouldn't have made it through these 20 months without the kindness from the cult of the curious and your willingness to cover this subject as well as all the awesome episodes to get me through my days. Thanks for all that you do. Keep on sucking. Master sucker, you guys are the best. Ah, shit, yeah, Jessica. Okay. Aha. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. The Casillas family took on the Department of Immigration and won a victory, not just for them, but for love and family. A nice chance to remind America that our land is a land founded by immigrants. Let's not lose that. The great melting pot stops being spicy and tasty if we don't mix in some of that sweet Mexican salsa. Love you, Jessica. Hug that motherfucker tight for all of us and hail Nimrod. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a great week, everyone. Do not kill anyone, but if you do, for God's sake, be honest about it. He killed. And keep on sucking and hang around after this sounder for Joe motherfucking Paisley. <laughs> Hi, I'm Joe Paisley. With the band Moretta. With the band Moretta. And this is our new song. And this is our new song. In Need of Better. In Need of Better. Woo! Fucking nailed it. Nailed it.